Good afternoon, folks. Uh, thanks for joining in. Um, I've spent the last uh, week or so uh, spending a lot of time looking into Charles Eisenstein and sort of how his involvement in the RFK Jr. campaign, um, what role he's playing and sort of what it says about the larger picture of what's going on. Um, and just to before I get started, I just wanted to sort of, um, just by way of a little update, so I'm gonna probably do a stream today, um, and there's a lot of material, so I don't think I'll get through it all, um, and you'll be bored to tears <laughs> to listen to all of it at once. Uh, so I'll probably do another stream tomorrow, and then I may have some more stuff, but um, it's my mother's 80th birthday coming up, uh, so I'm gonna be going out of town and I'm gonna take her to the beach uh, for a bit. So I won't be back until like the first week of June. So if there's a bit of a break on the channel, you'll know why. It's just um, I'm away taking care of family stuff, which is important. And um, just by way of making things personal, um, my friend Eve, who did the wonderful zine, uh, came over. Uh, she She's in town also taking care of family things. And she brought me some more shells. So my stash had been um, somewhat diminished. And so, look, I have all of these beautiful shells i went to the jersey shore with my husband last weekend but they don't have beautiful shells like these there so thank you so much eve um for that and just by way i know sometimes i've been talking a little bit about um like my quilting project so i haven't i would hope to finish this for my mom she doesn't watch my videos so it's fine um but i only got the top done but this is um this is the quilt project that i've been working on here let me uh transition over to picture picture yeah, so this is um, so this is the quilt that I've been working on. It's called All the Good is the Pattern. It's sort of modern improvisational, and I think it looks sort of beachy. So um, yeah, so that's that's just personal Allison news before we we get down to business. Um, and this this presentation may feel a little bit scattered. There's a lot going on, and I actually made two maps that I've linked to. Um, this is the sort of the smaller map, the the network map. Um, and it, it the, the, the streams that I want to do, they bring together two different items that happened to me like essentially on the same day. The last stream I did, I was looking into this uh, guy, uh, W. Aaron Van Diver, who had written a piece for The Defender promoting uh, eco-libertarianism as sort of his, his solution to the climate issue. Uh, and he cited this gentleman named Jem Bendel, who had been previously affiliated with Extinction Rebellion, but then supposedly sort of fell back and said, no, 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 that's too totalitarian. We need another model. Um, what I found out the same day that I learned that Charles Eisenstein was now the sort of, you know, in-house advisor for the RFK Jr. campaign or philosopher or what, what have you, um, I, I saw that Jem Bendel, who had been referenced in, again, this Van Diver article, uh, uh, Van Diver had written quite a few things, at least half a dozen things for The Defender, so sort of is a regular in that space. And he had written uh, this post about, can we reboot the environmental movement so it protects freedom too, with a lot of flag waving there. And then further, it was a quite a long article, but there was a whole big section promoting this new book by Jem Bendel, Breaking Together. Um, and for what it's worth, I think that this breaking together concept is very much about um, like the slime mold model, create a crisis, band all of the cells together, create a self-sacrifice zone for the spore, and then move on to other pastures. Um, so, you know, Jem Bendel was prominently featured, and 
when I was looking at his Twitter feed, um, he had actually tweeted on the 15th. Yeah, so I guess I've been working on this about a week and a half. Uh, uh, Professor Jem Bendel, this is a tweet from May 15th. Some of the best examples of a hashtag great reclamation of our power comes from the community economics initiatives in Kenya with grassroots, grass econ, grassroots economics. And he retweeted um, a, a tweet from Will Ruddick, who is someone that I've had my eye on. And Leo has done um, quite a bit of research into uh, grassroots economics and their connections in the digital currency space. And uh, ostensibly cooperative economics, but cooperative economics with a, a digital protocol layer underpinning, which is, is really um, where things are all going. And so I, I found out at the time that um, it turns out that Bendel had actually been working uh, with grassroots economics since 2012. Uh, this is a tweet from October of 2012. Uh, Will Ruddick of Community Forms, Forge, and EcoPesa are here presenting on complementary currency um, in Geneva. And so 11 years ago, really when a lot of this new uh, economic system was being remade. And so, wow, I was like, well, you're not really this. Yeah, I always say, you know, beware of the conversion story. Um, and I say this just because in my own personal experience, the people who come and say they've seen the light and they're the insider who's like figured it out and is now can give you all sorts of uh, really glowing uh, insights into how people think because they're the insider, it often does not work out well. And so for me, this idea that he had been sort of aligned with a corporate environmental movement and then seen the light and was now working for some, some more regenerative program, um, when I saw this, I'm like, no, you've actually like the long game has always been community currency. And and I think that that's something that we have to start coming to terms with in terms of understanding, like, what are we in? What What is really going on? Um, how do we understand the game that we are in? Um, because within this sort of cognitive domain management, right, within the storytelling, um, Especially, I think that the quote-unquote resistance has been managed in very specific ways uh, to inhabit a certain story. And in many ways, I think this story of community currency um, is supposed to feel liberating, right? Um, all of the people who are picking up the tokens, whether they be, you know, attention economy media tokens or crypto tokens or you know, even, you know, Catherine Austin Fitz really promoting uh, community currencies, maybe not the digital ones, but in concept that that maybe the game that we're in isn't. They use the totalitarian authoritarianism launching point to boost us into the longer range game, which is decentralized, like tagged decentralization systems analysis, like uh, self-emergent, self-organizing systems. And and in that, this protocol layer of Web3 and these quote unquote, like specialty currencies that we're going to be using as signals um, are a key part of it. And I, I think that's really important to know because it turns out that Charles Eisenstein is so deeply into that space as well. So the two things sort of converge together with Jem Bandel, uh, formerly of corporate environmentalism, now for eco-libertarianism breaking together uh, as the slime mold, and, um, and, and Charles Eisenstein, who, you know, as it turned out when I was, you know, he, so let me go over to this other map. So this is, this is my other map. Um, 
and essentially it's looking at Eisenstein and RFK Jr. And I'm going to take a minute to sort of play my highlights clip from his Bitcoin conversation uh, in Miami. And what I did was I... I pulled out, they actually had done um, a podcast together a year ago uh, about climate and carbon. And so all of these yellow dots in the circle are clips uh, from that interview a year ago, which is kind of funny because if you if you buy into the Substack story that Charles tells is sort of like, oh, it was just a serendipitous meeting at a falconry event that led them to join forces for this campaign. When re realistically, it doesn't take a whole lot of looking to, to know that they had been collaborating for over a year. Um, but but so th this is these are all of these these clips. Um, and then on the outer rings, I have sort of how Charles Eisenstein's affiliation with Cello, uh, which is one of these uh, social impact uh, protocol layer enabling humanitarian aid community currencies, how it's actually going to go. Um, and so I, I, you know, I'm I'm sort of in this framing. Um, how shall we say? Um, I think in one of the clips, Charles says, you know, don't write anybody off. It's not good. That's the dominator principle, right? And like, woe is me that I would want to be the dominator. So I'm not writing Charles off, but but it, it does, I find it really difficult when people tell these very eloquent, uh, emotionally, uh, like heart-rending stories about the world and a future that they want, um, and in reality, their actions, in his case, being an advisor to Cello, which is the Web3 protocol layer, um, are not in alignment with that. And they speak very much about sort of morality and coming from this right place and, and you know, these larger, you know, spiritual leanings. But, but the truth is, you don't have to look very hard to, for it to all start to come apart. And if you actually did embody those values truthfully, and, and we're all very complex beings, so I'm not saying like, you know, there can't be redemption, um, but someone who, who authentically understands would then be in a position to have to speak out about um, what he had been involved with. And that hasn't been happening. And so many of the frames in uh, the sort of the climate uh, interview that he and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did last year were actually setting up Web3 impact markets, which is um, really, um, uh, you know, to me, worse than people who are just outright saying they're doing it, right? And then you can debate and say, I disagree with this. I think this is wrong. Someone who's trying to cover it over and make it so that it, it disappears and inviting you into a story when you don't really know what it's about. Um, Okay, so those are the two things coming together. So it turns out that Charles, um, when I was looking into his work, and I've shared this on my YouTube channel, so some of you guys may have seen it already, but he was a, a keynote speaker at a summer of 2019 event at the Mount Washington Hotel in New Hampshire, in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, uh, at the 75th anniversary of the Bretton Woods uh, Conference, which essentially established the World Bank and the IMF and created the global economic order of the post-World War II era, right? And it was a lot of economic coordination such as was available at that point. <laughs> um, but clearly, you know, at that point, the, the era of cybernetics was really just opening up. I mean, um, at, at that conference, the time I think maybe a year later they would start the Macy conferences, right, of, of cybernetics. And so the ability to engineer economies at a very, very granular level through tokenization, which is what Will Ruddick is working on, along with Michael Zargam and these various people with the 
uh, bonding curves and token engineering. Um, this was melding community currency as a signaling and coordination mechanism as a language. And the host of this event, her name was uh, Galia Benartzi. Uh, it turns out that she's a niece by marriage uh, of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, her, her father's uh, sister is his third wife and uh, very connected because they brought together like 200 people, uh, including people from the central bank community, Larry Summers, um, uh, many, many people from the blockchain community to start planning out the next phase of what Bretton Woods 2 would look like in this coming era of cybernetics and token engineering. And, and Charles was there and he was telling a story. He was telling a story about uh, a new story of money. And uh, in this money, in this one of the stories he was talking about was like channeling the oversoul of Mother Earth and saying that Mother Earth was dying and so unconditional love was over and that the new the new era was going to be lover earth but we had to prove um humans had to get their act together and prove that they were a worthy uh lover and they would do that through gifts and and performing gifts um in ways that could be documented which will be the protocol layer um and so you know, I, I do. I know there are a lot of people who are annoyed at the whole Gaia worship thing, but and I can see like if you're following along with people like Charles Eisenstein and you see this sort of embedded hypocrisy in that, like, yeah, like this Gaia worship is unpleasant. But I actually am coming to this from a sense that there are ter like things that are terribly wrong with how we manage the environment and our relationship to it. Um, but I know that the answers that are going to be developed in rooms like uh, Mount Washington are probably, it's going to be a new game. And the rest of us that are going to be invited into the the, the commons of their gaming, uh, we're not going to understand the rules of the game. We're going to be told stories about what the game is, and we're not going to fully understand it. And it's not going to be good. It's just going to be the the newest generation of not good. Um, and so, so Eisenstein you know, again, not to write him off, but he's playing a role and his role is a storyteller. And the more I sort of looked into the people around him and the influences, you know, essentially what it seems like he's he is, is he is a, a public face to uh, put together ideas about economic systems that date back, you know, almost 100 years um, and have been presented by various people at various points in time. But it's now it's his turn to sort of carry the ball and then... Um, cover over the climate authoritarianism with another story, which is that that we should be like lovers to the earth and uh, that this is all sort of conditional on uh, the, the behaviors that we perform. And, um, you know, when he even mentions in, in his presentation at, at Bretton Woods, uh, he talks about how important digital currency is to that. And, and I didn't realize I don't follow Charles super closely, so I didn't realize that that was his he was he was calling for like a jet debt jubilee. Uh, universal basic income, and then it would happen through digital currency, which is really one of the, the things that um, a lot of people have been concerned about early on. So uh, let's see. So I guess I'm going to start off with just playing the uh, RFK Jr.'s Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Oops, sorry. Uh, Bitcoin talk, uh, because I think That'll give me a frame. And I know as several people said, oh, I was waiting for you to actually uh, comment on this this talk. So I'm going to I'm going to play this. It's about three minutes and I might pause a few times just to 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 give my insights about what I'm hearing is a bulwark against precisely 
this kind of government and corporate expansion and intrusion. I will defend the right of self-custody of Bitcoin and other digital assets. Now, I will just point out, this was sort of a quick transition, but and, and Leo pointed this out as well. Bitcoin and other digital assets. And so that's key to the tokenomics is, you know, even though he's at Bitcoin and later on he says, well, I'm not here to give you investment advice or to say which will work like that's about the market will decide that. But it's important that the other digital assets are included. And then they're also talking about corporate overreach and government overreach. Now, I think that's a key part of what we're being set up for is the story of decentralization and commoning, right? Uh, the little guy and how you will be uh, a participant in the game will be through your digital wallet. So when he's talking about protecting your custody of holding your Bitcoin in your wallet, it really is your digital identity and your digital twin, but that's not being said. You should be able to own your own private keys the same as you own the keys to your car or own your wallet. Now, if if they were being honest and forthright, what RFK Jr. would be talking about is the fact that beyond health passporting, right, the conversation really didn't ever go much beyond the health passporting, is that the digital twins are the blockchain wallet, right? That the predictive analytics will be based on what is the contents of your wallet, whether those are uh, some sort of tokenized currencies, behavioral currencies, soul-bound tokens, NFTs, that, that ever, that, that that aggregated data will be will be you right it's not just about holding a bitcoin wallet it's about something more much more complex and sophisticated and and you would think that three years in we would be have moved on to the fact that we could talk about that that's what it was now they will set it up because the, you know like uh the guy van diver he was promoting eco-libertarianism right you will be the custodian of your data maybe you will benefit from your data and allowing its use in various capacities but they're going to make it very difficult for you to not be a digital commodity in some respect and you know if people have if you've seen my video from like 2018, the little one that I did about blockchain life on the ledger, you know, towards the end, we talked about like access to the wallet. And if you're someone who has multi-millions of dollars, um, you're never gonna have to unlock your wallet uh, to show your data. I mean, not never, but like to get money, ultimately the vast majority of people will be put onto universal basic income and not have viable work, right? They'll be compensated with some sort of tokens for volunteering and, you will have to top off your ability to live with your data, like access to your data. If the most elite people won't, there are probably relatively few instances where they're gonna have to actually open up their wallet against their will to show what their data is. And so I think this is really important. Your wallet, whether it's in your pocket or in your, or in your computer is your own. Yes, your twin. I don't think the government has the right to demand access to your Bitcoin key or indeed any of your passwords. So again, he's speaking to the Bitcoin crowd, but what I wanna say is he's framing it as the government wants your money, the government wants to know. And again, this is very calculated. Um, this is part of the narrative that's been fed through most of the resistance influencers out there. They wanna keep your focus on central bank digital currency and they wanna keep it on the government because I believe that the, the 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 next phase of the game is the decentralization and you being an agent uh, 
with custody of data that's shared and collaborated with and monitored through the protocol layer. They want that activity to happen, but it has to happen digitally. So the story that we need to primarily be concerned about just central bank digital currency, which again, at the ultimate, the, the, the tippy tippy top, you know, the, the Bank for International Settlements is going to control the ultimate ledger. But there's going to be a lot more loosey goosey stuff at the lower levels because they're, as I see it, based on the information that I've, I, I keep uncovering, the community currency narrative has been coming through since the 80s um, and always probably with the intention that it would ultimately go digital. And that is a much more robust palette for the AI pattern seeking than simply one uh, digital currency, whether it be Bitcoin or a central bank digital currency. So it's not just about the government and it's not just about custody of the wallet. To say otherwise is to cede essential territory to the surveillance state. Now, again, the surveillance state. He's framing the surveillance state as they want access to your key to look at your money, right? And and that's not the, the surveillance state is eventually, you know, I'm going to talk about Charles Eisenstein's connections to Cello and Sep Kanbar. Sep Kanbar was setting up Montessori preschools with artificial vision cameras and sensors in the shoes of the children to track, track their social, you know, and that's not the government, right? That's not the government doing that. That is a private entity that's imposing that level of surveillance. And the surveillance itself, it's not just it, it, watching in case you do something criminal, it's, it's actually to develop the patterns to make the predictions and then to engineer the people like that's what the surveillance is is to create the emergent system and so to frame it in these really simple terms again i think is not is is oversimplifying and distracting from the larger concern of the protocol layer the whole point of bitcoin is that it's decentralized and yeah decentralized that's what they want they the, the goal and now and again i'm not saying that i approve or i i think totalitarianism is good. Um, but in this next phase, the phase of emergence, they need everything to be decentralized. And it's important not only for Bitcoin, but for democracy to be decentralized. Now that's going to be coming up with the radical participatory democracy, right? The um, everybody voting on everything and that you have your AI robot, um, you know, voting on your behalf. And there are prediction markets and betting markets on all forms of uh, public policy. Um, and that the governance, because governance is cybernetics, that is Kubernetes, it's government, <laughs> um, that that will be happening at all different levels. Like you, they, they imagine that you will have economies, free market economies in your biology with nanobots. They, uh, they believe that we will have free market economies of not just money, but token voting uh, in your all sorts of communities, all sorts of uh, interest groups that you belong to, right? Your 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 school, your uh, sports teams, all of these things will be creating their own tokenized market exchanges to create the signals for the, the AI pattern seeking. President Biden's 30% tax on energy for Bitcoin miners requires an invasive surveillance apparatus to monitor what is happening in individual computers. Now, I will, I'm going to point out later, and if you've seen the clip I shared when he was talking about uh, with a group in Houston in 2012, essentially, they were talking about energy credits. And for, for having a decentralized energy grid, 
run as a free market and that the energy companies would come in and do renovations with smart appliances in your home and then fund those like they would a dam project, a a hydroelectric dam project. So here he's saying he doesn't want the government to have that level of surveillance over you, whereas a decade ago he was actually saying he'd like for the free market to be able to access your home with various kind of heating and cooling and other appliances and control it that way. So on the one hand, like what is RFK Jr., right? Is is he somebody that's concerned about energy use or isn't he? Because to me, that that's this is this is a pandering opportunity, right? If if you've created your career around environmentalism and then you say that you care about that. Um, but now you're turning around and saying, oh, but it doesn't really matter. The only reason they're going after Bitcoin is because they're, they're afraid of, uh, you know, having something outside the government. I, I don't buy it. I think that that, that's, um, that doesn't really show that you have a strong moral value. Now, again, I, I consider myself an environmentalist. I'm also very skeptical of the um, consensus around what is happening and the time frame, because I think that the the trauma crisis mentality, the limits to growth mentality that has come through uh, many thought leaders, including Charles Eisenstein since the 70s, is advancing us into this cybernetic steady state control grid, which I also don't believe, you know, so I'm not, you know, I'm not an apologist for big energy or big oil in any way. But, you know, I, I think I'm, I don't know exactly how to resolve this, all, all of the issues, but I do know that it's important. And for, for me, the flip-flop here is, um, is telling. It says a terrible precedent in which everything that you do re- that requires electricity must now be monitored by the government. Now, I would say that his interest is he would like it to be managed by free market economics. And you know, I've mentioned in the past, um, one of the people I'm going to be talking about is John Clippinger uh, and Sandy Pentland, and they came up with this open mustard seed platform, which was early digital identity in 2013. Um, and they actually gathered not far from Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, when they had their initial retreat for that. Uh, that became the open mustard seed became the ID3 uh, platform that was based in Cambridge for about a decade. And then in 2019, it moved to Austin. And at that point, and it also, they changed its name to the Token Commons Foundation. It has a footprint in Switzerland. And they switched from digital identity to energy economics. And the company that they were affiliated with was called Switch, S-W-Y-T-C-H. So there is something about the energy futures trading that is central to this. And I think Ultimately, the the organization of these emergent systems, like social systems, social computation, will happen through the engineering of the circuits. Uh, and those are going to be power grid circuits, and they're going to be linked to digital money electrical circuits and potentially like our inner bioelectrical signal circuits. So at every level, there are going to be circuits in place to manage this. And I think that's why... You know, the big oil isn't outside of this. The big oil is right front and center, and especially the energy futures traders. And that's why I think there's been so much focus on Texas in particular to get them onto the blockchain. That's why I also support people's rights to refuse smart meters in their homes. I will make sure that the United States remains the global hub of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Well, and again, I would say that's, 
again, the whole point of decentralization is that it isn't a nationalist framing, right? And so to, to say that you're endorsing a technology that is not supervised and decentralized, but you're going to continue to make the U.S. the center of it, you know, especially since, you know, China has been doing so much of the mining, the crypto mining, it, it doesn't actually make sense. That's just a pandering comment in my... Events like the FTX calamity prove that some kind of regulation of the crypto industry is needed. And that was always coming. And that's what I've said in the past. The, um, you know, anarchopolco, libertarian, uh, capitalist sort of greed frame was going to swing back to the tokenized commons. It was always going to be, you know, you've, it's not the, the tool, it's how you use it. And so that the FTX was set up, especially with embedded altruism or effective altruism embedded in it to come back and set up the tokenized commons, which will be the restored radical democracy that I think that the Kennedy Democrats will be ushering in. My administration will consult with knowledgeable people like yourselves. So again, knowledgeable. So these are some of the richest people like in the country, the people who are holding crypto. These are the tech billionaires. Now, throughout the lockdowns, many people in the resistance have pointed out the issue of huge transfers of wealth, right? The huge transfers of wealth were happening in the technology sector. Now, these are the very self-same people like the Mark Andreessen's who are setting up Web3 token engineering. This is what's coming. And so, again, there were so many people that were hurt economically by the lockdowns to say that you're going to sort of advantage uh, the crypto uh, society. These are not just I mean, yeah, sure. At, at some point, these are everyday people who are taken in and, and doing trading. They're not realizing what the game is. But the people who are controlling these systems are, are are billionaires, right? This is a billionaire's game, the crypto game. It's not happening these these little people like you might think that you have a wallet that has certain amounts of money. They can they can disappear that overnight if they want, right? It's it's the high high level players and it's because it's about the cybernetics. To establish sensible jurisdiction and governance. The environmental argument should not be used as a smokescreen for an agenda of suppressing Bitcoin. So I do think that eventually he's gonna loop around to next-gen nuclear, and I, I've said that in that other uh, presentation. I'm not an investor, and I'm not here to give investment advice or to promote Bitcoin over other cryptocurrencies or other currencies. Okay, so... But... That's the job of the free market, not the President of the United States. Again, so... Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he, he has framed his position as free market, or sometimes he says fair market. Um, as I'm gonna show some clips from the Bancorp presentation by Charles Eisenstein, that is not at all his position, right? He, he, what he was promoting was debt jubilee, universal basic income, and digital currency. Um, and so which is it? Like if, if you're going to be the philosopher of a campaign, right? If you are gonna be the storyteller of the campaign, and I know that in his Substack he said, well, I don't agree with him on everything, but this seems to be at the core, right? Which are you, Charles? I mean, are you in alignment with free market economics, uh, eco-libertarianism, or are you in alignment with this idea of a steady state to 
token engineered economy? Or are they maybe both the same thing, right? Are they going to be threaded together in this transpartisan narrative and be brought together? And, and that's what I think. I think one side is speaking out of one side of the mouth and the other is the other to bring people together, to bring, you know, the left and right together behind, um, you know, the, the, the digital circuitry of, of the protocol layer. And again, I would just point out, like right in the middle of that QR code for accepting Bitcoin, which is this Kennedy, for those who are listening, it's... Um, at this point, a, a screen comes up and there's a QR code to scan for giving uh, Bitcoin, uh, donating Bitcoin to the campaign. And I'm not sure exactly what, how that's all going to work out in terms of like campaign finance laws and transparency. Because again, what RFK Jr. keeps saying is like, I don't need to tell anybody about my donors. And, uh, you know, we need to be, you know, uh, the government doesn't have a right to know. So I don't know how all of the Bitcoin donations are going to work out in terms of like political, but that's concerning to me. If 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 he's not interested in, in letting people know who's donating to children's health defense, do we not have a right to know who he, which crypto, you know, people are donating to his campaign? Uh, because Again, I think he wants to present himself as being on the side of the regular people, right? The regular people that bring back regular liberalism or something like that. Um, but if that message is being bankrolled by elite crypto technocrats, then it's inconsistent. Bitcoin embodies two of my highest ideals, transparency and trust. Americans have come to distrust the government including the way that it has manipulated our money supply to benefit the very rich and to prosecute endless wars. So again, the goal is don't trust the government, right? Um, but what, trust the crypto uh, billionaires? Like, is that, the, is that what we're swapping out? Don't trust the government. Trust. And I'm not saying, sh surely there are many aspects of the government that are concerning, but they're still elected, right? If what we're moving to on Web3 is a free market in token trading run by AI portfolios, there's no, I mean, you can say there's accountability, but there's only accountability to the system as it's encoded and regular people aren't encoding that system, right? Essentially, we're moving into a machine um, regulated world. And we haven't had enough conversations to say that that's going to be in any way better. Because like he said, who is he going to consult with about this? Well, he's going to consult with the Bitcoin people to get their advice. Well, do you think the Bitcoin people are going to be representative of all the people of the world? They're not, right? They're a certain select interest group. And so, um, again, to to frame it as uh, accountability and transparency, that we shouldn't trust the government, that we should trust what? The machine? <laughs> I mean, we should trust literally the machine, like like uh, encryption and coding uh, is because to me, that doesn't that doesn't speak to the Kennedy legacy as they like to sell it to you. I think they like to sell it to you as something that's like humane and authentic. But the machine isn't that. It can never be that. Bitcoin is a neutral currency. I'm it's not neutral. None of this is neutral. Proud to make an historic announcement. But first, if you can please pull out your cell phones, our campaign will be the first presidential campaign in history to accept Bitcoin donations through through the Lightning Network. Okay, and so I just wanna point out, like, so he's saying, get out your cell phones, right? Now, this goes back to what I was talking about, you know, when, when Jason and Leo and I did this, 
you know, the atomic ecologies thing last year. The early track and trace were radioisotope. And, and th those were economies within ecosystems. That was what the Odom brothers were working on. And uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name um, at Yale. So they were working on exchanges, uh, metabolic energy exchanges in ecosystems. That was early with radioisotopes. Eventually, that system of remote sensing through radioactive, radioactive material evolved into now is these stupid digital devices that we have. Like, this is our track and trace. So if on the one hand you're saying we're worried about surveillance, but on the other hand you're saying get out your cell phone to give us money, like think about that, right? Because at that point, you're pinging, right? Anyone who's submitting these transactions, like that's part of the, the simulation, that's part of the data harvest. And essentially we're authorizing a future where we're governed by the devices, right? Where our behaviors are governed. It's sure it's convenient, right? It might be efficient. It's we're moving uh, bytes instead of uh, bits instead of atoms. Um, but we're this when when he says get out your cell phone that is like pull out your digital identity your digital wallet um to participate in the future right to participate in you know the kennedy Le legacy 2.0 which is which is going to be connected into the cybernetic control grid oh all of you i know are here again not because you love a currency but because you love our country you love democracy you love freedom and in that sense, your support of Bitcoin puts you in the same category as the framers of the Constitution that gave us that Bill of Rights, that created these democratic institutions. Now, again, as, as the Philadelphian, you know, uh, you know, t t Tim Scott has a, a good piece in Dissident Voice called uh, The Duplicitous Constitution. And he does a very thorough analysis of how that document was structured in a way to tell a really good story, but then to conceal the actual nature of power and who holds the power, which were landed men, you know, and and then to give you a bill of rights, but to have it be set outside of that so that really you could only access those rights if you had the resources to take something to the Supreme Court, right, and, and and preside in when your case, right? And so there are a lot of good stories that were told about the Founding Fathers, about the Constitution, and I'm not here to say like, hey, why don't we just throw it all open and have Soros redesign it? I'm not saying that. That's not where I'm coming from. But I, I'm, I'm skeptical as to the actual nature of that document. And knowing that the future of democracy is going to happen through tokens, it's going to happen through your darn cell phone or through, you know, your, you know, it's not even, you're not even going to need a device ultimately, right? And, and that it's going to be through these protocol twin agents. So for him to keep citing democracy in the context of his Bitcoin speech, again, highlights that the control grid is coming through various kinds of tokens, some of which represent the thing that we imagine as money, and some of which are going to be represented as things that we imagine are votes. And then some of them are simply going to be tokens that represent, you know, behaviors, right, or co compliance within the game. And those are going to be the other kinds of tokens. So all of these tokens are living in your wallet. And to me, for him saying, like, yes, come on, I want to be the leading candidate of Bitcoin is essentially agreeing to the control grid. Saying that you're doing it for democracy and transparency and decentralization, but essentially doubling down that yes, the future lives in the QR code, 
right? The future lives in the, think about that. Like think about that, like what we saw unfold during lockdowns and us living on QR code culture. And in many respects, those of us who were regulated by QR codes would find that that's a pretty grotesque symbol, right? But we're just supposed to agree to it now because it's like our guy that's doing it. So I think I think that's really, we should, we should pause. And I think they're not asking people to pause and think about what they're really seeing right in front of their face. And you are the current manifestation of that impulse. Okay, so, so that's, so that's that. All right. So um, I just I want to start off with this optical illusion because I think understanding the game is really important. And we need to understand it to be able to figure out what Charles Eisenstein is doing on the campaign. And uh, there's a number of these different ones. Uh, some of them are uh, like there's the two faces uh, facing one another and then there's a chalice. So like, do you see the faces of the chalice? This one is, do you see the young woman or the, the old lady or the young woman? And um, if you're looking at the young woman, it's it's sort of the side of her face and her eyelash and nose and her dark hair and in a, in a muff and uh, a feather like in her hair. Uh, and if you see the old woman, uh, the line of her cheek is actually the nose of the old woman. And then the eye and this uh, choker for the young woman is the mouth. And so uh, this is a, a very old and classic opti optical illusion. And I mean, on this, I would assume that probably there might be equal percentages of people who see one or the other. And then once you point it out, you can probably see both. And so what I'm trying to do in this is to sort of point out that I think that there's an optical illusion um, in this and that what RFK Jr. is selling us on and many of the influencers uh, out there is this idea of they're selling the authoritarian, th this idea of authoritarianism. The threat is authoritarianism. The threat is the government. Um, to get your freedom, you need a digital wallet and that we need this decentralized democracy, right, in order to face off against the authoritarian government. Now, I'm not here to say that the government, that, that things that happened around the world were not authoritarian, but I would say they have as much to do with the private sector, as well as the nonprofit sector, as well as the academic sector, as they do about just the government. Right, and so to, to, to frame the authoritarianism as simply one entity is inaccurate because what's coming is the public-private partnership that is endorsed by academia and research scientists. Um, so, so they want you to focus on the authoritarian aspect. Um, and I think that, that they wanna keep you in that place, that that's the thing to worry about. I think for me, what I'm really concerned about is gamified life. Uh, that, 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 that we're going to move from the authoritarian phase, which was the catalyst, into a gamified life with the token engineered rules. And they're doing this not to just make money, not just to make us miserable and to be the boss of us and to make us do things that we don't want to do, but actually they want to uh, um, embrace the wisdom of the crowd, right? And so in that, they need everything tagged, they need all of the metadata interoperable and aggregated, and they're going to use our interactions um, at every level from our own internal biological interactions up to our social interactions, uh, up to like global workforce uh, to 
track uh, human decision making and to do this biohybrid computing. And they're gonna say that this is about self-actualization, uh, that this is about us emerging into this new phase of evolution that is cooperative, uh, that is uh, collaborative, that is like the social insects, that is the ant computer that I keep talking about. Um, and th this is something that I, I don't hear I mean, there are a lot of people talking about it who are doing this research and in any one of these things, um, you know, and, and there's quite a number of people who, who continue to send me things about cybernetics and systems theory, it's systems theory and uh, emergence and complex adaptive systems uh, and great comments, you know, Rodrigo and, and uh, Hanging Thief and the, you know, a lot of, lot of good thinkers um, and, and uh, Lorraine Davison around the, um, Talhar Desjardins and the noosphere, and of course, you know, Steffers has done a lot of this work in in the nanotech space and the swarming within the nanotech. So, this is, I think, where we should be focusing our attention at this point. Again, not to say that to dismiss what happened in the past and say that it was not a problem, but it was a transition. We're in a phase transition, I think. And as with this optical illusion, they want to keep you focused on one viewpoint and not to see the totality of it. And I think we have to be able to have a flexible enough cognition to see and hold both at once in order to navigate what's coming. Um, and so, so the you know, I keep saying that the libertarian stuff is important. Um, and what I didn't realize is, so you know what, I'm gonna go over to this beautiful money thing here. So we've got, here we have uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, we have Eisenstein, who's now the campaign advisor. Uh, and he gave this keynote at Bretton Woods. And um, so here, here he is on the porch. <laughs> and it's interesting, this is a video that was done by Crypto Banter uh, CNBC Africa. It, it was actually, it was a, it's about a 40 minute documentary about the event and I would highly recommend if you have 40 minutes to watch the whole thing. I cut it down to about 10 minutes and I probably am gonna show that in a few minutes, but I think this is this is the next game. So Charles, Charles is there. Um, they're developing a new language uh, through, through the cybernetic engineering and let's see, let me, how do I not have the whole, I'm sorry, I don't have my handle on all of the, where all of the, so he, so here, Bancor was the host. And uh, Bancor is, is, was led by Galia uh, Benardzi. Essentially, it was based on this concept advanced by John Maynard Keynes and E.F. Schumacher of having a supranational currency that would be a, a multilateral clearing system. And this was in um, the 1940 to 1942 that was uh, developed as this uh, an international currency unit of account. And this was put forward in the original Bretton Woods gathering and it was shot down. Um, and, and EF, but I, I, I'd heard of, you know, Keynes, but I didn't realize that Schumacher was part of Bancor as well. And Schumacher is essentially behind this um, like Buddhist economics and uh, community currency and all of the things that are coming. Um, uh, and like, it just wasn't time yet. It wasn't time in, in 1945 to do that, but it's gonna be time now. And, and that's what Charles and Galia are ushering in is this, this new era with 
with with the digital the digital currency systems and then having um robert f kennedy you know presenting at bitcoin just speaks to that to me so um you know what before i get going to i wanted to talk a little bit about just the framing here uh, because someone so charles announced this in his Substack. uh the Substack that uh, you know was featured this heal the divide 2024 and he he made this announcement that he's you know he has this major life change and you know he he really thinks that rfk jr is the leader we need today to like bring people together and heal the divisions and tap into these shared moral values and again i would say um you know if charles truly believed in moral values he would be thinking harder about his uh attachments to cello and what's coming next i didn't know that charles was involved in the digital currency space uh, but here he's writing for the peer-to-peer foundation in 2013 about where where digital currency needs to go next um and he's 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 like you know leaning into digital currency and actually in this he talks about designing digital currency to be like a self-regulating homeostatic living organism and so i would say actually bitcoin has been compared to that as as a, a homeostatic living organism and Irvin laszlo the, the systems theorist you know he was always wanting to run the world on a homeostat and and that's part of what uh charles was promoting is the steady state economy like a homeostat degrowth and uh homeostatic organism so you know that that fits very closely with uh with these ideas and here's a uh, an article from the medium he's talking about uh, we we need to change the story of money and so he's there presenting this idea of a new social uh, economic system which isn't really what robert f kennedy jr is promoting um but you know, th- this is what he was promoting is, is a new story of money. And I think in this space, I see, um, you know, wh- I call this series Camelot Corner because again, the whole Kennedy legacy and Camelot. And I, I think it's interesting to think back about the round table and the Knights of the Round Table, this idea of Arthurian legend. And again, that it's it's decentralized right it's supposed to be horizontal governance and that the round table is sort of like a decentralized autonomous organization that that's what the DAOs are that's that's what's coming so in many ways having camelot like ushering in this new era of of a round table um makes a lot of sense um you know there's there's a number of uh images of this round table and it actually is shaped like like a donut it has a hole in the middle so it's 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 not a, a circular table it's a round table with a hole in the middle like a donut and i feel like what they're pushing is this idea of love um and the the this donut donut economics which is also kate robworth talks about that she's also connected with a lot of the community currency is the taurus field uh the donut is the taurus field and so to me it feels a bit like charles eisenstein is the storyteller uh he is the troubadour uh he is the troubadour who's going to tell us a new story of money and it's a story where the money can um be about beauty and be about love and and i feel like but but the inversion of this is that the mechanism for this beautiful money or this money of love is that it comes in a cybernetic grid system and a machine can't love 
a machine can't love. And so um, I find that this really interesting. So I feel like the role that Charles is playing is this courtly poet, um, is, is someone who, who is brought in, uh, a tr I called him a troubadour. Um, the troubadour was sort of a, a central figure in medieval literature. And they he would sing songs uh, dealing with chivalry and courtly love. And later on, he talks about um, uh, you know love being um, you know all of this being about love the, the, that that we've moved from Mother Earth to Lover Earth, and so that's very much in line with with the troubadour, and uh, and then you know the the story that he tells in his Substack was that. Oh, and, and this 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 Substack was from May fifteenth of twenty twenty three. It's titled "A Major Life Change," and it it says it all started a couple of months ago with a coincidence. And it's interesting that he does put air quotes around coincidence. Um, so so maybe that's his hedging on that it wasn't really a coincidence. Um, it said Robert F Kennedy Jr. knew my work vaguely before then as a fellow COVID dissident and environmentalist, but that had little to do with his coincidence. One of my readers won a fundraising raffle for a day of falconry with Robert F Kennedy Jr. She was allowed to take a guest, and so she invited me. And so it sort of talks about like he didn't really like falconry, but he had admired Kennedy, so he accepted the offer. And then it says, you know, uh, at one point over lunch, Mr. Kennedy turned and said, "Charles, what do you think?" And that was what began the relationship. And soon we were in frequent communication. And, you know, again, I just, I find this so sad because this is a person, like, I can sense his humanity, right? But he's telling us a story that is easily proven not true. This idea, at least the framing of the story, that they didn't know one another before this falconry day is not true because they did a podcast together a year ago, like an hour long podcast where it was very clear that Kennedy had read his work and found his analysis around climate, which was less about managing carbon and more about managing other things, which is suited to Web3 um, of interest and probably useful to him where he needs to go to pivot, to bring together, you know, to turn climate, you know, and environmentalist uh, Bobby into, um, you know, health freedom Bobby. And and that Charles's books, which are again based mostly on a lot of work of other economists and other thought leaders who preceded him, but again, dredged back up for pop popular consumption in this moment as we're being positioned for digital currency, but community-based, decentralized community currency. Um, so yeah, so the day of falconry being the beginning of the relationship is not true. And yet throughout this, both Kennedy and Eisenstein are going to ask us to be truthful, right? To, to be moral, to hold us to a higher standard. And so what I'm, what I'm asking is to, I'm holding them to this higher standard, right? You're saying, you're, you're inviting us into stories, but you're not being truthful, right? And if you were, you wouldn't have framed the story this way, but maybe this is all a fiction, right? Maybe we're, this isn't even real and we're all being just entered into a fiction, um, but yeah, so, he, you know, essentially the focus was around his book on sacred economics, which is, again, going to be this digital money backed by things we love. And he imagines that this campaign will be a playground to enact his philosophy in a new practical way. And so what I would say is um, if RFK Jr. read Charles's book about sacred economics and wanted to invite him into the playground to try his philosophy out, it doesn't really mesh with 
an eco-libertarian worldview. It's actually Charles's understanding is much more managed, right? I mean, there's going to be some serendipity in there because that's what the emergent system wants. But um, Kennedy is appealing to the free market. And Eisenstein's view of UBI and uh, debt jubilees is not that. So they're actually at a fundamental disconnect. And, and I wonder, do they not see that about each other? Or is just the cl climate stuff the more convenient aspect? Um, so anyway, he just says that, you know, he's probably not going to be writing as much, uh, but it says this blog will comprise the thoughts of a philosopher who has entered the realm of politics, though not thankfully as a politician. So yeah, he's a storyteller slash propagandist. I'm, I'm, I'm being generous to call him a troubadour. Um, and I think that this idea, again, of the round table, uh, evoking the, the decentralized autonomous organizations. And again, this is what Zargam is working on uh, in the same milieu with Will Ruddick and uh, Bernard Lyotard and Jem Bendel and these systems theorists is to have this internet of impact with token engineering and impact data all uh, running things that, that represent decentralization, but are actually in many ways um, very regulated, very regulated by the rules of the protocol. Um, one of the things I'm going to talk about in a, in a bit, uh, it connects to John Clippinger and Sandy Pentland and this open mustard seed platform. An early example of this was actually something called Hub Culture uh, that started out in 2002, but I think they were collaborating since 2013 with this guy, Stan Stallnacker. And he, he was an author of a, a chapter of the book From Bitcoin to Burning Man. And it was about a digital currency called Ven, V-E-N. And you know, it's interesting now that I think about Ven, when you look at the Cello logo, it's two intersecting circles, uh, which uh, one is green and one is yellow, and it's the Vesica Pisces, right? And it's also a Venn diagram. So it's interesting, I hadn't really made that connection to just now that the, the digital currency that Stan Stallnacker was using in his hub culture um, was called Ven. Very early on, again, like 2002, um, he had been formerly with uh, Time Warner and he was developing uh, digital currency micropayments in 2007. That's the VEN. So the VEN was 2007. So again, in the lead up to the last economic crash, uh, they had their own private cryptocurrency exchange. They had their own um, international co-working spaces and that they were working with this Windhover principle, which is what came out of the open mustard seed where these Windhover uh, digital identities. And so this is like for the most elite class. Um, and they were using the, the data that was created by Hub Culture, um, including later on a active quarantine ally health passport <laughs> uh, to feed it into an AI called Zeke. And Zeke, to me, that sort of speaks to Ezekiel's wheel in, in Revelation. Um, so, uh, you know, to me, the hub, the hub is the same as, as the donut and the donut economics is, um, uh, yeah. So the, the round table and the hub and the cybernetics, this is just the chapter by Stan Stallnecker, Venn and the Nature of Money. And I do think, now that I'm thinking about it, that the Venn diagram is, is important. Um, but yeah, so they've been working on digital currency for a very long time, and, and Charles is definitely in the midst of all of that. Um, and in the digital currency, this brings in another uh, character who was at this Bretton Woods 75 event. Her name is Michaela 
Ulyaru. Uh, she's a Romanian scientist specializing in self-organizing systems and blockchain impact. And her hands are her. She's into every everybody's business. But the chapter she wrote from a clip for the book from Bitcoin to Burning Man was on holons and holarchy, which is bottom up organizing and nested holons. And so I think you can imagine that the current community currencies that are going to be pushed, the digital community currencies that are going to be pushed are like, you know, in a body in this morphogenetic development, you've got, uh, you know, cells that come together to create tissues, that come together to create organs, that come together to create bodies, and then the bodies come together to create societies. And so managing oscillation and time and signal transmission among all of those units is really vital. And so that's why it has to be digital. And um, if they can transform us into a digital twin, then essentially we don't even have to physically be present. Our um, and they don't have to move atoms, which is like material reality. They can just move bits, which is so much more efficient. They can move it. And then they have access to so many more potentialities in terms of um, cognition and distributed uh, intelligence. Uh, if you can op if you can shift from material to digital and then move it at the speed of light. And so again, everything is speeding up and, and becoming more and more complex to the point that like regular people can't even understand what's going on. Um, so, so anyway, but like I wanted to point out that the, the, the Holons are also like the round table. So you've got cybernetics, you've got the Taurus field, um, you've got the hubs, uh, the wheels. And then the other thing is love. So Charles often talks about love. Uh, one of his books is called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. So again, the heart. And, you know, I've talked before about the electrical field of the heart and how you know, that that's, that's very significant. And that Galia Benardzi, who was in, um, who led Bancor uh, with Eyal, E-Y-A-L Herzog, uh, he was the architect of the platform, this liquid token trading, um, that their first uh, exchange, tokenized exchange was LEV. And LEV is hearts. And, and the LEV market was a market targeting moms in Israel to trade off. It was almost like a digital babysitting co-op or something like domestic work. Like you would change trade carpooling or babysitting or cooking for, for that. So um, so I think it's important that that is also the heart. And um, again, we've got uh, Kate Raworth here, the donut economics, the Taurus field, and then this is someone that I had come across early on in doing my work looking into the Foundation for Integrated Education with uh, Julia Stolman and Fritz Kunst, this guy Robert Hartman. And Robert Hartman was <sighs> a strange bird. I need to like do a whole presentation on Hartman. He, his family went, okay, so I, hopefully you guys can still, see. you're still there? <laughs> okay, sorry. Sorry about that. So, okay, so Hartman. Let me see. Oh, gosh. Oh, okay, so he was, uh, yeah, so one parent was Catholic, one was Jewish. He went to a school where he wore a hair shirt. He was very devout. 
He escaped Germany in the lead up to the rise of the Nazis. He went to go work for Disney and then he became uh, a leading proponent of value, measuring values. And and so I think this is all moving into the happiness stuff called formal axiology and this moral economy that we're moving into that direction. And um, yeah, so he eventually came to the U.S. He, I think... Let's see, he, visit, he was a visiting professor at MIT, and eventually he ended up at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, which is right outside of Oak Ridge, right, and was uh, a founding member of the Society for General Systems Research. But he chose the name Hartman. Uh, it wasn't his original name because of the heart. And so, again, he was essentially the father of the 401k um, and profit sharing. And so this idea of, like, linking your values to your money, like, goes all the way back to Robert Hartman. Okay, so okay, so that's you know what? I'm going to just see if I can Ha. Huh. There's like a sort of an odd thing on my screen. I don't know. I guess you guys aren't seeing it, so maybe it's not a problem. Okay. Uh okay, so All right. So I guess I guess that's mostly it on the love stuff, but I think again, uh, we've got the falconry going on. We've got the troubadour who's going to tell us some stories. Uh uh, we've got the love and uh, so we, we've got the love stuff going on. And then so I'm going to play a couple clips from um, setting up the storytelling part. And then later on at the the bank, uh, the Bretton Woods 75 talk that Charles gave at the end, there was a discussant and her name is Carolyn Finney, who is like an uh, uh environmentalist whose focus is on like black women in the environment and she had also done backpacking in Africa and Tibet or Nepal um, and so she has a certain kind of outlook and so she was the discussant and uh, in his talk Eisenstein kept talking about his one of his main framing things was this musical chairs and that there weren't enough chairs and at, at one point Carolyn said, you know, Charles, I just don't think I, it's not that black people need more chairs. I think maybe we, we just shouldn't even be in this game. And while I, I sort of disagree with some other aspects of what she said later, or the two of them said about trust and transparency, which is sort of alluding to blockchain, um, I thought that was a really good point. Because if, if what Charles is doing is like trying to get more chairs for the game, that represents his connections to Cello. And Carolyn's saying like, there are other ways of knowing and being, so maybe we just shouldn't even be in this game. Um, okay, so here, here's Galia uh, speaking about the importance of storytelling. And because in the first chapter, uh, he talks about how humans- Wait a minute, I'm gonna move this over to full screen, sorry. Okay. Whoops, all right. ...are different than apes, essentially, and other animals in the animal kingdom, and we're the same in many, many ways. We procreate, we have families, we do things together, we protect, uh, we eat, we groom, but there's a fundamental way that humans are different from all the animals that came before us. And that thing that we do that's totally unique is we tell stories. We tell each other stories, we imagine stories, and we create consensus around stories that allow us to organize in increasingly greater and more complex ways. So a good example of this is if you put 100,000 apes in Times Square, you'd probably get violence and chaos. But if you put 100,000 people in Times Square, we know how to handle that. Why? Because we have stories like Walk on Green, 
and stop on red, and this is where the people go, and this is where the cars go. Um, and these stories allow us to coexist and collaborate, hopefully, um, in greater numbers over time. Money is one of our greatest stories. One of the greatest stories that people have told ourselves and each other since the beginning of uh, mass collaboration. Because in the first... All right, so money is a story. And so that's, that's an important piece. And then I'm going to scroll on to what Charles says about telling a new story about money. Magic. Uh, and of course, the power of a system of ritual, and I don't want to reduce it to this, but much of the power of a system of ritual depends on the stories, the meanings, and the agreements that that symbolic system encodes. So basically, this is pretty obvious, I think, that money is a story. It is just such a set of agreements. That is incredibly liberating because if the story isn't working, in theory, stories are created by human beings. Actually, that's not quite true. It's more the opposite. But let's just say that, that stories create human beings. But let's just say that, that for now, that stories are created by human beings, and we can create a new story. All of the things that we see as real, the entire money system, uh, $20 trillion of debt or whatever, these are human creations. These are stories. If we had a, a Carrington event, you know, a, a solar coronal mass ejection that fried all electronics, there would not be any money anymore. No more money. So I want to explore a little bit about how the story of money could change. All right. And so, all right, let me just escape here. All right. So, um, so those two things, the importance of story and inviting people into the story. Um, and that's, that money is a story. And I think, you know, Jason's been spending a lot of time. He's that's really his wheelhouse is understanding the nature of money. Um, and that money is a coordinating mechanism, right, for this emergent behavior. And so we're in the process of changing the story. Um, and I think Charles is clearly a good storyteller. I mean, if you look at the Substack comments, I forgot to go through this, but you know, there were hundreds of comments at the time. I don't know. Let me just see how many are almost 500 comments. So I don't know. That seems like like a lot. Um, I scammed through a lot of them um, at the time. Many hope, 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 joy. Uh, there were some people who were concerned about RFK Jr.'s climate position. There were some who were concerned about his affiliation with Robert Malone. There was some concern about crypto. Lots of people that it, said it was exciting. Some people were like, oh, it's a psyop like Bernie people who generally distrust the system. Some people are like, no, no, I'm definitely like switching parties to join the, you know, Kennedy Democrats. And, you know, that, that you know, they, they appreciated Charles for his honest writing, right? And, and again, that's the presumption that what he's doing is telling the truth as opposed to telling a story. And I would say, I think what Charles is doing as a philosopher is telling a story, um, which may or may not always actually align with what we 
other people might consider the truth. Um, so going through the the comments again, Steve Kirsch, no surprise, uh, he was he was in the comments. Oh, uh, this is awesome! Thank you for doing this. I know RFK Jr. well, duh, right? And he's awesome because he's a truth seeker. I think he'll be the best president we ever had in our history. Good move. Um, uh, and you know, then again, here's the glad to hear an honest philosopher is joining the political team. Um, and you know, here's another person. So this person follows my work and they're saying, well, Allison documents, let's see, RFK Jr. has very questionable ties to the global technocrat criminals as Allison McDowell ably documents in Wrench in the Gears. But he's saying crucial truths that must be said and heard by the public that no other prominent political figure is saying. He's by far the best prospect out there and his family slash fame gives him cred, blah, 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 blah. So on the one hand, the work that I do if you reduce it to questionable ties to global technocrat criminals, that's not what I'm saying. Like, that's not how I frame this. Um, I'm, I, I don't frame it like that. What I'm talking about is, is systems, right? Now, this is someone who's playing a role. Um, I think if what you said was, RF, I'm not sure about RFK Jr. He seems to have some contradictions like hiring a former Pfizer representative to be the COO of Children's Health Defense, or he doesn't want to um, share who his donors are to Children's Health Defense and it has a $60 million budget, or he seems to be promoting drugs that are being linked to pay for success finance. I don't think any of those things fall under ties to global technocrat criminals. Like to me, I, I appreciate that someone did want to bring my research into it, but it's inaccurate, right? And at this point, someone who follows my work should know enough to make a more accurate statement than that, right? These these vague glossing overs are not helping. Um, but then to go on and say, he has these problems, but like what is this least worst or something like that? But he's saying crucial truths. And what I'm saying is the crucial truths that he's saying is that we need a decentralized digital money democracy. And have we agreed that that's what we want? I don't think we have. I don't think we've carefully considered what all of the implications of that are, right? And so it kind of hurts my heart to see that when I get brought into the conversation, it's both inaccurate and then essentially someone has just thrown it out the door like it doesn't matter, like none of this work I'm doing matters. It hasn't informed what they're looking at at all. Um, here's someone, you know, oh yeah, remember Obama made a lot about hope and change, uh, but hey, maybe this time, you know, uh, we'll be successful, right? And um, and then here's another person. Uh, great, Charles, I, I would have given Steve Kirsch $2,500 for a place at the table in Boston when Bobby gave his nomination speech, but I didn't have the funds. Um, okay, so $2,500, so so much for, for the people, right? I'm sure Steve can pay, pay a lot of stuff. So um, anyway, like he's a storyteller, right? He's a storyteller and he's telling stories that I, and then people want to hear the story. People want to buy into the story that they're comfortable with. That doesn't make them work too hard. And and I, I that's what I'm seeing sort of in these Substack comments. Um, okay, so, so then let's see. I'm gonna hop over here. I wanna just, I have things tucked in all of these different places. Um, I'm like there there's there's Charles and you know Carolyn Finney and the in the wing chairs at the Mount Washington. Uh 
here, uh, I think I think Rodrigo uh, gave this in a comment, which was really helpful. I think I'd seen this writing, but I didn't read the caption uh, that this is Galil. It's I'm sorry, it's Galia, not Galila. Galia Bernardi of Bancor giving Bernard Lietaire, who was the creator of the euro and the the promoter of complementary currency, a a book of Eisenstein's Climate: A New Story, and it says by one of our favorite authors, right? So um, so Charles is right in the middle of all of the Bancor. Uh, programs, right? The, the digital coordination. And I'm just trying to see where he says that he's with Cello. I think, you know, it's frustrating because on um, the, they, it used to be on their website and then they, then they took it off. Oh, here it is. Um, they used to have a list of advisors and Charles was Featured. I mean, there were there were many advisors. He wasn't the only advisor by any shot. But um, they, they Cello still does have a, a tweet out there from March of 2020. So literally a week after lockdowns, uh, that we are excited to formally welcome. This is Cello Charles Eisenstein as an advisor to Cello. So um, you know, just to document and and being an advisor to Cello is just like getting more chairs for the black community, right? To have a more even chance in the token token engineered economy. So I'm gonna just play this this short clip from Carolyn and, and you can can listen to that. Uh, me, gonna... ninety chairs. And you know it's like, gosh, I think the white people are getting too many chairs. Um, maybe the, although there's, I don't know, maybe 80% of us are white people here. So imagine that that part of the circle where the white people are, that's only missing a few chairs. And the part of the circle where the black people are, that's missing a lot of the chairs. So a, a, a um, ideology of racial equality says we gotta mix it up and make not enough, we have to make the chairs equally available to everybody. Everybody should have at least a fair opportunity, uh, an equal chance to go for one of these fake chairs. But a deeper level of transformation would be to say, well, why are there chairs missing in the first place? So if we take that for granted, if we take 10 chairs are missing for granted, then it's always going to be a, a, a game of us versus them, it, it, or it intensifies those. So can I offer also, I was thinking about um, what I heard you say around the margin to center. For me, the margin to center is a really limiting model because the center, for me, what's innovative and different often happens on the edge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I'm thinking about the musical chair metaphor. Why do we even need chairs? Is it possible that there are, you know, some of the conversation I'm hearing in the past day or two is that what I'm, how I'm interpreting it is that there's different ways of knowing and being in the room that we can, we can, we may not know how to tap into, but it's there. And how do we allow space for that to happen? The possibility that we may not need the chairs. What if we didn't? So it wasn't about, we got to get 10 more for you. Uh, you know, or 10 more for whoever so we can fit everybody in because maybe the circle that we're sitting in is not the best circle for us to be sitting in in the first place. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, that's the question for me. Like, 
are we sitting in a circle? Whose circle? What is the game, right? And I would say, you know, for me, and this this is just sort of come, you know, occurred to me, um, you know, and again, the the, the whole uh, the whole thing of um, uh, musical chairs, especially like when I'm looking at the round table and the knights, like you can sort of picture them running around the the chairs or whatever. Um, the musical chairs is like, what if the chairs are your wallet, right? Like, what is there? What if that is the thing that you're attached to? And our wallet is what's going to transform us from physical material, like from atoms that that are um, into the bits, which will be transmissible globally, like globalization is about to be on, put on turbo drive, right? As we get all turned into digital avatars and sent around like with the Japan Moonshot Project. And and with that comes life lived at such a fast speed, um, the speed of a machine that it's gonna be totally dehumanizing, right? And, and I think Carolyn's point of like, do we wanna even be sitting in these chairs? Maybe these chairs are not the place for us. And, and I think that she's entirely correct in that. And so, what Charles is offering is, um, I think you could swap out a digital wallet for a chair, and that's the hat that he wears when he's an advisor to Cello, is that if everyone has a digital wallet, then you can have a digital twin to be in the circle of the cybernetic game board, right? But we don't have to do that, right? Like we could actually, there's still time to say no to the Web3 protocol layer. Um, so, okay, so I think that, that gets to most of those things. Um, okay, so then I'm gonna go down to this section. Okay, the coronation. Um, so he, his most recent book, so he has a book about sacred economics, he has a book about climate, he has a book about worlds and love and different things. Um, this one, I'm not sure when it came out. Um, it's named after an essay that he wrote in 2020 uh, called uh, The Coronation. Now, I will say, like within this frame, like the introduction at Bancor or at the Bretton Woods 75 Summit, essentially what he's, he's saying is that like they're just waiting for the next crisis to bring these marginal uh, experimental systems to the center, right? And so... And, and I think that that would have been the lockdowns. And and so a lot of people have linked this idea of Corona to crown, to, you know, the bloodlines, to the royals, to the Bank of England and all of this thing. Um, but I have sort of been thinking about this, like um, this, the book that I've been listening to while I've been working on my quilt uh, is the, this idea of distributed cognition and about the octopus. Um, and I'm trying to see where, let's see. Um, let's see, oh gosh, I don't, I'm, see my problem is I, ha I set up too many maps and then I just didn't, I wasn't able to organize it all very well. Um, but in, in the, the, the book with Adrian Tchaikovsky, Children of Ruin, I think, he was essentially framing this idea of the, oh, here it is, uh, the crown. Yeah, sorry, it was uh, uh, the, uh, the crown. The, the brain of the octopus is the goal setting and the reach is the arm and the tentacle. And so I think that, that this decentralized currency system is, 
it, it's not simply control, it's control towards um, creating a, a super intelligence, like a distributed cognition super intelligence in a coordinated fashion. So not just coordinating economic markets or coordinating uh, supply chains, but coordinating things on a, on a more sophisticated level than we could ever imagine. Um, and so this idea of the crown, now I thought that this was what other people called it, I guess maybe it's only Tchaikovsky calls it a crown and a reach. Uh, to me, I thought it was like that was what the scientists called it. But when he, when I saw coronation, this is what I'm thinking, that what, what Eisenstein is advancing is this idea of a mechanism that will create a steady state economy that will advance this as aspect of the program. So, um, but it has to happen through the distributed computing. Uh, so here, I'm going to play this clip that is about him um, needing a crisis to bring the ideas to the center. This is not a matter of being a little more clever, finding a different fuel source to maintain and continue the extraction and the domination and the paving over of Earth. But it is an invitation into a different relationship no longer the dominator relationship. Now I want to bridge this back to money, because that's what Bretton Woods was about, and ask what kind of money system would be consistent with a story of interbeing? It doesn't do to fight the power of money in our attempt to create a more beautiful world, in the attempt to, to bring about ecological healing. So often it seems like a battle, and that's because it is, given the nature of money as we know it. But as I said, money is a story. And, and what new story of money could we tell? Now, I, I took, I, even though I disagreed with pretty much everything Larry Summers said, um, I also feel like he is an elder who's lived a long time, and there's always something. Anytime you write somebody off, that's part of the dominator paradigm, too. Um, and one thing that I took that I, I really liked was the metaphor of the, uh, of the blank page. It's easy to create something new, um, but if the page is already heavily written, you can't really make that much of it. You can maybe just, you know, adjust some words and things. You can't do that much with it. So a lot of what I'm going to say, I'm not going to say, okay, here's the design, but it's more of sending a post to the future. When that page is thrown in the trash, when there is a massive crisis, then the unthinkable becomes common sense. And so I want to inform the common sense and, and send a message to the future. And many people in this room are doing that as well, not just through your ideas, but through your organizations, through your enterprises that are perhaps kind of marginal these days. Now, there was quite a heavy presence of blockchain people at this event. Waiting for the center to disintegrate so that what was in the margins can rush in. Yeah, so waiting for the center to disintegrate. So this is like a planned demolition. And so if you were ever wondering sort of at his positions around the lockdowns and the nature of that, then I, I think this says a lot. Again, this, this, this event was in July of 2019. 
Islands of the future and an ocean of the past. Right. This is not. All right. So. All right. So I'm just so okay. So so we've got the coronation. Um, again, um, this idea of. Uh, Normality has been stretched. This is this is a March 2020, right? So this is just at the very beginning. Shall we undo its dangling braids further to see what we can weave? Uh, COVID demonstrates the power of our collective will when we agree on what is important, right? So he was seeing this as the next phase of what was coming. And so again, I'm just thinking of the coronation as the crown of the octopus and distributed cognition. And uh, one of the entities when I was putting together like the token engineering, um, I came across this thing for this metagame uh, that the Zargum was involved with a little bit. And it's about like this coordinated uh, distributed computing gaming system. And essentially like the icon for that was an octopus brain. Um, and like it, it was the all it is, it, I guess, sort of the octopus is, is a an icon for the decentralization, distributed cognition. And, oops, sorry. Uh, let's see. The, the biomechanics in the wild, nine brains are better than one, how the nervous system works. And again, I think we're considered parts of the nervous system of this super organism, like this global super organism. So this is an image of the, the huge brain of the octopus with all these uh, lobes and refined sensory systems. And again, um, you know, Cliff and I did that talk about the outside in robot, won't you be my sensor? <laughs> and the idea of layering intelligences, both human and non-human. So this is an image uh, from an article from the winter, uh, from a magazine in the winter of 2021, New Media, Journal of New Media Caucus, um, where they're talking about layering in essentially human intelligence and slime mold intelligence uh, over texts. Um, I'll just read this this uh, this little bit. It's the, the article's title was "Case Study: Remixing Knowledge with Layered Intelligences" uh, by Lucy Hung Solomon. Uh, uh, Caesar Bao and uh, Caesar and Lois, an artist collective consisting of Lucy and Caesar. Okay. Uh, in de degenerative cultures, the living organism Physarum polycephalum partners with an artificial intelligence that compiles and corrupts an archive of human text. In the iterative art installation, which incorporates the growth cycles of microbial organisms, uh, protists, as well as fungi, cover up and effectively remix human texts. Human knowledge contained within the philosophy books used in the project become the substrate for organic growth. The living organisms grow over an actual book and the AI referred to as a digital fungus corrupts texts on the internet. The artists experiment with link, which links microbial growth logic to artificial intelligence is one step in rethinking how human knowledge may become layered and ultimately corrupted and rerouted, a forking of sorts, through integration with non-human logic systems, including microbiological and artificial intelligences. By orienting this work to remix theory, the article offers the hypothesis of a multi-species recombination that could, in utopian terms, reform 
formulate the epistemological basis of modernity. And that's, it's like, that's a, a mouthful. But I, 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 I guess what I'm trying to convey is, you know, um, Leo has talked about Leadguard and this idea of digital wallets for animals. And so I feel like this is all part of creating virtual spaces with virtual micropayments. Um, and the payments aren't really even going to be money as we currently understand them, but like exchanging signals of contributions and blending all of these intelligences. But it can't be done. Well, I'm not saying I guess I think we have a natural way of accessing you know, the collective consciousness of the world without a digital substrate. But the, 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 the crown of the octopus, whatever is doing the goal setting, isn't able to do that um, and manipulate it and set the goals unless it happens through the digital protocol, which is the Web3 layer. And so in order for us to function with other intelligences in a way that's visible to the machine, the Web3 part has to be installed. And so art projects like this are sort of a part of it. And so what I, I feel like we're moving towards, and, and this is something I'm going to talk about like next, is um, there's a discussion I talked about the, the Hollands before. Um, yeah, the Michaela Uluru talked about organic governance through the logic of Hollonic systems that you know, the Hollands will be part of it. Um, I just have some some images from this, but just talking about bottom up and organized cooperation. Like this is why the commons conversation is so important. This is why the decentralization thing is so important. This is why the libertarian thing is so important. And this idea of agents and decision theory. And I think that three years of totalitarianism was the setup for us to transition to this phase of the game, like to this or this next act of the play, or this new, um, you know, reconstituting the team for a new game. This is what's happening. And it, and the first thing had to come first, like they had to have the totalitarianism to create the psychological uh, conditioning to accept the next phase of a tokenized commons. But this is where it's going, and it's going to be managed um, as through these circuits, different kinds of tokenized circuitry. Um, let's see, you know, and I, I had this in my map before, uh, talking about collective intelligence and cognitive societies, cognitive capitalism, Melanie Swan's cloud minds, um, that this would happen through social service payment systems um, with different uh, team coordination through the tokens. And this would happen through stigmergy. And, um, Oh, I almost forgot. Let me see. Uh, sorry, uh, just with Charles. I I forgot to mention. I think it's further down. So again, Eisenstein. The name means iron stone. Iron stone. And I mean, it feels like all of this is sort of planned. You know, like this is sort of there's this symbology embedded in this. So you've got the falconry, you've got the Camelot, you've got the troubadour, you've got the ironstone guy. And then, of course, iron, the earth's core, like, I guess it says along with um, nickel and sulfur is the core that creates the magnetic field of the planet. Um, and so I feel like you know, Eisenstein is set up to be sort of a magnetic personality to pull people into the story of the new kind of money, the money that will coordinate us through commenting into this um, 
position of being a lover to the earth um, and move us towards the noosphere and the emergence. Um, and uh, someone passed this along to me this morning, um, and I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to definitely incorporate this. But it was this idea of artificial pheromones uh, that I've talked about before with swarm robotics, and they were trying to figure out how, like, how do you create a biochemical uh, pheromone for robots, like for machines. And so they've been trying out a lot of different things. Um, and in this one, they were using magnetism and ferrofluidic um ferrofluids, uh, which are some sort of carrier fluid with uh, tiny, tiny iron filings, like nanoparticulates of iron um, that would guide the swarm robots. And so I feel like this stigmergy is something that's like that Eisenstein in some ways embodies. And maybe that's what, again, Bobby is looking for in his campaign is is a magnetic personality that can, um, you know, set set the goals and let the tentacles of the octopus, you know, figure figure things out. Um, Anyway, so yeah, so this this is just is the map that was showing the different ways of like the stigmergy uh, in swarm uh, swarm organizing, and you know I, I talked about that a lot with the Celia Farber Substack uh, and the swarm and the ant computer, but um, yeah, I think people people's personalities and the way they tell stories are also stigmergic, um, and so so uh, someone had sent me. Uh, uh, a couple of clips about this idea of self-organized criticality and nervous systems. And I, I thought it was really interesting because they're looking at the way the mind works. This guy for um, John for who's a professor of cognitive neuroscience at university of Toronto. Um, and he's an interesting guy. Um, perception, cognition, and cognitive neuroscience is his, his, his shtick. And, uh, he's very interested in this idea of, um, relevance realization. And for me, this, that actually really made a lot of sense because I feel like we're navigating all this information. We have a certain frame, we have a certain goal hopefully it's a goal that we've come to internally from our own being that's not just been assigned to us and we're trying to sort out the information that comes into us through all of our senses and through all of our social networks and to sort it into understanding our own story right our story of how we're understanding the world and he calls this relevance realization and we're doing it at a time when we have there's so much information we have limited attention we're trying to figure out how to organize our working memory um and you know, in, in what to put into long-term memory and then how to access these long-term memories to find the patterns. And I think that's what they, they're hoping to replace us with with, with AI. Um, I don't think that they can do that. Um, the AI is really good at like holding the long-term memories, uh, but I don't think it's good at, at some of the other stuff. Um, so Verveke is talking about this uh, uh, criticality and uh, let's see, distributed cognition and myth. You know, I can't remember exactly what this one is about. I have a couple of clips from him. And then uh, someone else had sent me this. And I, I, I cannot claim to have delved deeply into this, but the self-organizing universe um, uh, published uh, by Robert Maxwell of Pergamon Press, of course, that's um, talking about that. And then I think it's paired to me like with this handbook of human computation. But if you can like there's emergent behavior at and I've talked about this before at the border of order and chaos and. Um, let me, I'm going to pull up my descent, my, this descent map real quick. And, uh, and this goes with the network state, like 
they're trying to get us into this network state to to create emergent behaviors. Um, and they're, they're like creating records, uh, you know, they're creating all of these digital wallets. And, uh, you know, and then the, within the futarchy, the new remade democracy that we're going to be uh, betting you know, betting on outcomes of policy. This will be happening through protocols. There will be fitness benchmarks tied to sustainability. And, um, and you know, and from this, there will be these complex emergent systems like coming out. Um, and it's at the border of uh, chaos and order that is where the interesting stuff happens. So I think that if we imagine that this gamified life of self-actualization, right, in, in terms of some sort of uh, supercomputer game, this emergent man that Julia Stulman, you know, and Irvin Laszlo talked about that will be emergent um, uh, in this gamified, you know, this is the metagame. What in the hell is metagame? Metagame is, you know, this way of coordinating uh, people in the commons towards a common goal, you know, with our wallets and our guilds. And again, we've got guilds, so we're back to the Middle Ages again. Um, that it's to create something emergent, right? But in, in some ways, that might be kind of interesting, but we weren't ever asked. Like, we didn't, we don't have enough information to give informed consent. We don't. And a lot of this stuff is being uh, perpetrated on vulnerable communities, children, the global south. They certainly can't give consent, right? And, and they're coming from disadvantaged, you know, positions already. Um, so, but I think that the currency is about keeping us at this border of emergent behavior. So I'm just going to play these two clips from Verveke. This, this first one is about uh, distributed cognition and myth. And I think a lot of the framing around RFK I think most of our problem solving is 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 linked to myth. I think a lot of this is myth making. Oh, whoops! I okay. Uh, sorry, I thought done in distributed cognition. Uh, like look around. <laughs> you didn't make this equipment. You didn't build this place. You didn't invent this language that we're both sharing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and now there's there's more specific and precise experimental evidence coming out. Um, let's take a standard task that people a reasoning task. I wanted to do the details. It's called the waste and selection task, and you give it to people highly educated psychology students, primary universities across the world. You've been, we've been doing it since the 60s. It replicates and replicates. And only 10% of the people get it right. You put them in a group of four and you allow them to talk to each other. The success rate goes to 80%. That's just one example of a, a, a phenomenon that's coming to the fore. We've participated in conversations that took on a life of their own and took us both in directions we did not anticipate, afforded us insights that we could not have had on our own. And we don't have to have come to an agreement, but we were both moved and we were both drawn into insight. And we feel like, wow, that was one of the best moments of my life because we feel how that introduced us to a capacity for tapping into a flow state within distributed cognition that puts us into a deeper relationship with ourselves, with another person, and potentially with the world. That's what I mean by dialogos. And so for me, I think dialogos is more important. <sighs> Boy. That I don't think 
mythos is, I think mythos is really important. I think these kinds of narratives are really important. But I think this ability to connect together in distributed cognition, collective intelligence, and cultivate a shared flow state within that collective intelligence so it starts to ramp up, perhaps towards collective wisdom. I think that's more important because I think that's the basin within which the myths and the rituals are ultimately created and when they function. Like, like a myth is like a public dream. It depends on distributed cognition and it depends on people. And I just want to point out like the Kennedy legacy is a myth, is a mythology. It is a public dream. I think that that's really important to understand. It's this candidacy is being positioned in a very sophisticated way. And, and, and I think that indicates that there's a lot of resources behind it, right? And then the question is, what are those resources and what are they driving for? Like, what it, what, where do they hope that this myth is going to take us? People enacting it and getting into mutual flow states. So that communitas, that's Victor Turner's phrase, and he specifically linked it to flow, and I study flow scientifically, that, you know, that within distributed cognition as, 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 as the home, as the generator of mythos and ritual, and those are bound together as well, I think that's fundamentally correct. All right. So, sorry, I forgot to transition before. So, you know, I want to, you know, I want to point out just when I'm looking at, like, the, the situation, right? We've got this gamified life, self-actualization, evolution you know e even a lot of the stuff that charles talks about here like if you took it a face value it sounds good what is what does not enter into the conversation though is an analysis of who holds the power right and i i think you know I understood going into lockdowns this this issue of of power because I was looking at the financial system, I was looking at social impact. Um, I could see that the concentration of wealth, especially starting to be in hands of like AI run portfolios, was not human, and and there is a vast inequality of wealth distribution and power, right? And so we can paint the prettiest picture that we want about the future our hearts know is possible or what have you. But if what we're doing is advancing solutions that don't take into account the power dynamic, I think it's very misguided because to think that all of a sudden, like the Black Rocks, the State Street Capitals, the vanguards of the world are just going to be like turned into benevolent uh, philanthropists. Um, I don't think that that's accurate. Like, you know, I, and, and that's the frustrating part for me is like some of this idea of collaboration, like I've, I've benefited from that. Um, you know, sadly, because it's not real and it's only online, some of those collaborations ended up being um, with people who didn't turn like Either they never were the person I thought they were or they turned out to be some other kind of person, right? And and it's difficult to collaborate, like not in physical proximity with someone. But 
even so, like I've I've had revelations, I've had really interesting insights, I've had like good opportunities too. It's just it's very it feels very treacherous because we don't we don't know what we're dealing with. And so to invite people into these flow states online, um, it it is exciting because I, I think we many of us felt this way at the beginning. You know, the first six months of the lockdowns before, like we found people, right? We found people that helped us make sense of what we were experiencing in a way that 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 we maybe couldn't find other places and it was very rewarding and then eventually that those many of those relationships deteriorated into like noise or vitriol or other kinds of things um and so you know it's it, it's a nuanced discussion to have to talk about like this this self-organizing criticality um i think that they want to do it digitally because i think one again it becomes more machine readable and and machine capturable and to add into the programming um but and it and it vastly increases the number of potential collaborators you have if you can tap into the whole world and eventually we have you know automatic natural language processing that sort of thing. Um, but it is very treacherous. I mean, I, I say that from my own personal experience. Um, and yeah, so uh, here is another clip of him. He's going to be talking about the self-organizing criticality. This is for Vakey. Um, Increasing evidence that when neurons fire in synchrony together, they're doing something like compression. So if you give, for example, somebody a, a picture that they can't quite make out and you're uh, looking at how the brain is firing, uh, the, the areas of the visual cortex, for example, if it's a visual picture, are firing sort of asynchronously. And then when the person gets it and goes, aha, you get large areas that fire in synchrony together. Interestingly, there's even increasing evidence that when human beings are cooperating in joint attention and joint activity, their brains are getting into patterns of synchrony. Uh so I think that's what this community currency is. I think the community currency, and I'm gonna I'm gonna show in a minute like some Will Ruddick, who is connected with Jim Bendel in the complementary currency space, was involved in a project uh, during lockdowns to uh, help. And it's interesting because he traveled um, because it was there in person uh, doing digitizing the Hong Kong time banks. And I and it just occurred to me this morning, I'm like, time, time, time is also oscillation. And oscillation is central to cell division and morphology and morphic fields and embryology, like how things emerge. Um, so like using a community currency attached to a time banking system where the things that you're banking are things that are connected to culture and society and quote unquote volunteering, which I think feeds again into the social prescribing, that this is about coordinating some sort of emergent behavior and distributed cognition um, collectively through money and time and tokens. Um, and again, I, I get it, like sometimes we have these exchanges that are really rewarding, right? And, it, and and I think that's a lot of times what keeps people engaged in social media when it's not, you know, the whole trauma stuff that it's actually um, personal. Um, when you have these these connections, we what feel like authentic connections to people online, thinking through ideas and trying to solve problems. Um, I'm just not sure that in the long run that that's how we where we want to go. Uh, so that opens up the possibility for a very serious account of distributed cognition. I'll come back to that much later. Now, 
what we know what's going on in the cortex, right, at, and this is the point that's very, I think, very important. This is scale invariant. Which, what that means is at many levels of analysis, you will see this process happening. Why is that important? Well, if you remember, relevance realization has to be something that's happening very locally, very globally. It, it has to be happening pervasively throughout all of your cognitive processing. So the fact that this, this process I'm describing is also scalant and variant in the brain is suggestive that it can be implementing uh, relevance realization. Okay, now what happens is at many levels of analysis, what you have is, right, you have this pattern where neurons are firing in synchrony and then they become asynchronous and then they fire in synchrony and then they become asynchronous and they're doing this in a rapidly oscillating uh, manner. So this is an instance of what's called... And that's the order and chaos. So you get new information, it comes together and then it expands apart and it comes together and expands apart. Self-organizing criticality. It's a particular kind of uh, opponent processing, a particular kind of self-organization. So we're getting more precision in our account of the self-organizing nature, uh, potentially a relevance realization. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this first, and then we'll come back to its particular uh, uh, instantiation in the brain. So self-organizing criticality, this goes... Now, so he's talking about the brain, but I... He's also saying that it's at all of these different levels, from like small levels up to global levels. So I'm like, I think you could apply the same thing to us as agents in the ant computer or the world sensorium. Originally back to the work of Perbach. Um, so let's say you have grains of sand falling, um, like in an hourglass, and initially it's random. Well, well random in from our point of view of where right within a zone. Individual grains will end up somewhere in that zone. We don't know where because they'll bounce and all. But over time, what happens, because there's a virtual engine there, friction and gravity, but also the bounce, right? So the bouncing introduces variation, the friction and, uh, you know, the gravity. Uh, so they want the variation. And this is what I want to sort of emphasize is that as much as the the it's the it's this Hegelian dialectic, right? They're using the... Um, authoritarian to to advance the decentralized right they're they're used they're playing one against the other um you know and i did i did sort of see something in in the chat about like the the mark of the beast or buying and selling i want to emphasize that if we limit it to the financial we're missing a whole huge part which is the democracy and from what i can tell within the rfk junior campaign it's a lot about emphasizing democracy and those democracy are going to be tokens too so i would like not get super like only hung up on that one thing because the the, the complexity theory the emergence is going to become come from all different kinds of tokens that are going to be tied in with the web3 so i think you know again I, you know you, you can hold your spiritual practice and what you know however you hold it but if if there is something bigger going on within the protocol layer that is goes well beyond the buying and selling part. Put constraint, and what happens is the sand grains self-organize. There's no little elf that runs in and shapes the sand into a mold. It self-organizes uh, into a mound like that. 
and it keeps doing this and keeps doing this. And that's what the community currencies are going to be for. They are going to say that they are self-organizing. Now, again, it's going to be centralized decentralization because at the very top, the BIS is going to be running the ultimate ledger, like the reconciliation ledger. So somebody's going to be at the crown setting the goal of the, you know, the octopus head that the tentacles of the various communities and the Holons are organizing themselves. But at, you know, so it's not really decentralized, but at least for the way people will experience it largely will be that there is choice because what they need is the randomness to actually access the emergent behavior. And um, you know what, I'm just going to put myself up here. So um, I think too, p part of what I've been trying to navigate with the stuff about the AI, like the sole focus on AI as the threat and the chat GPT, I think that that is on purpose. Again, um, I think in many ways that the fact that people are so focused on the AI means that they're not looking at the smart contract layer and the protocols. And so I don't think that the machine can actually... I'm thinking about the singularity, and I've said this before, but I just want to restate. It may not be how we've been taught to think about it. It may not be that the singularity is a machine attaining consciousness, but it may actually be that a mechanical system is able to coordinate natural life on Earth through these tokenizations, through the satellite surveillance, uh, through the nanotechnology to coordinate it such that it uses us as a tool and, and we become embedded together. And that's something that, that Charles talks about a lot in other aspects of his talk is like the interconnectedness. He talks about the interbeingness. And again, I'm not saying that we're not interconnected. I'm not trying to say that we're yeah, I can see the connections, but in this line of thought, this idea of a machine creating a, a unified substrate of all of natural life that it can conduct through managed uh, electrical circuits towards, you know, some task. And I don't know what the task is, but I think what the task is, it involves something that it cannot create on its own because it doesn't have a soul and it doesn't have creativity and it doesn't have love. And so it's like squeezing us um, in ways to accomplish something that it could not accomplish otherwise. And that accomplishment is something that is supposed to happen collectively, which is why we're being engineered as social insects. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I'm feeling about it. Um, so get back to Mr. Now, at some point, right, it enters a critical phase. Criticality means the system is close to, right, is potentially breaking down. See, when, when it's self-organized like this, it demonstrates a high degree of order. Um, order means that as this mound takes shape, the position of any one grain of sand uh, gives me a lot of information about where the other grains are likely to be because they're so tightly organized, it's highly ordered. But then what happens is that order breaks down right? and you get an avalanche. It avalanches down. And, the system, and, if, and if this is too great, if the criticality becomes too great, the system will collapse. And so there are people that argue that civilizations collapse. Okay, and I will just mention um, 
too that like so the collapse narrative this is really central to Jem Bendel the Extinction Rebellion um, this woman Joanna Macy uh, Rianne Einsler this idea that again the whole Greta narrative is that collapse collapse is imminent collapse is imminent we have to do all these things because collapse is imminent now I would say that there have always been engineered collapses um, to clear the deck and start over. And Jason has, you know, done a really good job in his presentation about Ukraine and, you know, that being a setup for uh, the new form of uh, all sorts of digital pilots, digital government, digital identity, um, emerging technology implementation. Um, so, so the collapses have always been planned, but I think that with this granular, um, control grids, uh, whether that's, you know, how our digital identity through our, our government access, through the money, through the Internet of Things sensor tokens, that they'll have a lot finer control of how the collapses happen. And so I think he'll, he'll talk in a minute about these phase transitions of order, um, like ice is is a crystalline structure and in that form it's the, the structure is very orderly. So like he said, when it's in order, one point of sand can tell you a lot in relation to all of the other grains of sand. Uh, progressively less ordered is water, and then less, even more chaotic is gas. But there are phase transitions between each of those. Um, and it's in the phase transition that is where the emergent stuff happens. And so I, I feel like that these data analysts and the prediction markets and the bonding curves and the token engineering are going to be meant to keep us in some sort of quote unquote sweet spot um, keep us probably the us that I'm thinking of will be like our digital twins to keep us in some sort of sweet spot to maximize the like synchronistic neural firing, you know, of the story to get at the the whatever intellectual or cognitive or collective unconscious or psychic properties that we have that it wants. Um, okay, so let me just back to that. Due to call, what's called general systems failure, which namely, which is that these entropic uh, forces, right, are actually overwhelming the structure of the system, and the system just collapses. So collapse is a possibility with criticality. However, what can happen is the following: the sand spreads out due to the avalanche. And then that introduces variation, important changes in the structural functional organization of the sand mound. Because now what happens is, right, there's a bigger base. And what that means is now a new mound forms and it can go much higher than the previous mound. It has an emergent capacity that didn't exist in the previous system. And then it cycles like this, it cycles like this. Now at, at any point, again, there's, there's no T loss to this. At any point, it can just, the criticality can overwhelm the system and it can collapse. At any point, you, the criticality within you can overwhelm the system and you can die, right? But what you see, right, is you see the brain cycling in this manner, self-organizing criticality. The neurons structure together, that's like the mound forming, and then they go asynchronous. This is uh, sometimes even called the neural avalanche, right? And then they reconfigure. 
into a new synchrony, and then they go asynchronous. So do you see what's happening here? What's happening here is the brain is oscillating like this, and what it's doing with self-organizing criticality is it's doing data compression, and then it does a neural avalanche, which opens up, introduces variation into the system, which allows a new structure to reconfigure that is momentarily fitted to the situation. It breaks up, right? Now, now so think about like this with the idea of the Hong Kong time bank. Let me just... Um so the Hong Kong Time Bank, which is something that, again, Will Ruddick worked on and Michael Zargam. Um, so during lockdown, they took an informal ledger economy and they digitized it. And then they made it more and more efficient, which, again, fits in with sort of the anarcho-capitalist libertarian ethos and the agent-based gamification. Um, but it's a time bank of sort of social um, social behaviors. And so when you're talking about um, neural firing, like new information coming out and then it being integrated and then uh, getting a new resting state and then sort of fragmenting with new information and then having it processed and then coming together, oscillation that he's talking about is time. Like time is this oscillation. And so I keep thinking like, I know at, at some point, like Bantam Joe online, he had said, well, isn't it interesting that Facebook wants to give you lots of friends that aren't anywhere near where you live? You're at a distance, right? And, you know, it, on one hand, you could say, oh, well, that maybe that's about like, because so then you won't get together in person and maybe organize something and, and do something together, uh, but that you, you, you're at a distance from one another. And then also the whole trust thing is becomes more complicated. Um, but think about inserting new information. So if you've got digital twins, models of everyone, and their intellectual and cognitive and uh, soft skills, and then you, they're going to be predictions about throwing people together, right? And what will happen when you bring certain kinds of people together? And I think that also relates to all the changes that we're seeing in education, right? Oh, you have to do education online. Oh, you need to be a global citizen. Oh, you need to get in a hop in a VR headset and you know, inter, inter, do interchanges with people from all over the world. And again, not that I'm trying to be, um, like I'm not nationalist in any way, but if you understand it from the system, if the system is trying to maximize the, this serendipity, um, this uh, synergy, uh, then in, in to throw in new interesting bits of information to see what they can catalyze uh, and then have it processed and integrated and then do it over and over and over again and maybe faster and faster and faster. Like I feel like that is sort of what is emerging from this networked, world sensorium that that we're um, amassing into but i don't think that our participation in this is going to be again with our informed consent i don't i don't think that it's we are going to um for the most part gleefully enter into this process into this game that they're creating because we are literally you know we have whatever the you know automated luxury communism that they're talking about or like that all of our you know maslow's hierarchy of needs all of our needs are met so we're just like hanging out being our best selves doing our own intellectual you know work uh, because the robots are doing everything else i don't really think that it's going to be nearly that seamless and i don't really think that you know if again having blackrock or people in charge that their goal is to um, you know, give everyone their optimum happiness quotient, like much more likely that they're going to have everyone in a flow state headset uh, in their micro apartment, right? Um, you know, conditioned on appropriate like health monitoring status. Um, so anyway, so just I'll keep going. 
Do you see what it's doing? It's constantly, moment by moment, this is happening in milliseconds, it's evolving its fittedness, it's complexifying its structural functional organization. It is doing, right, compression and particularization, which means it's constantly, moment by moment, evolving its sensory motor fittedness to the environment. It's doing relevance realization, I would argue. And I would say compression, there's probably like econophysics aspect to the compression, like that you could compress an economy to create a certain outcome. I mean, just like shock doctrine, right? And, and the, you know, the boys from Chicago boys in Chile, um, they've often done economic interventions, but this could actually happen. Like you could probably have, have something happening on like a weekly nuanced basis if they wanted to. Now, what does that mean? Well, one thing it, we should be careful of when I'm doing this again, I, 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 I'm using words and gestures and, and that, and, and of course to convey and, and make sense, but right, what you have to understand is this is happening at myriad of levels, right? There's this, there's this self-organizing criticality doing this fittedness at this level and it's interacting with one, another one doing it at this level. So again, these, this is the Holon conversation um, at all of the levels. Like that's 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 the Holland. So when Galia Benarzi says, "Oh, you need a community currency to manage your PTA, or you need a community currency to manage your church or your soccer league," or um, it's these tiny levels, right? The the tiny levels of organization, and then oh, and then we're gonna have token voting for your uh, borough and then we're going to have this other thing for the next layer and the next layer that is the integration at all of the different layers that's happening that i think that that's that's how it's, it's supposed to go all the way up to the whole brain all the way down to individual sets of neurons so this is a highly recursive highly complex very dynamic evolving fittedness and I would argue that that is thereby implementing relevance realization. There is some evidence to support this. Okay, so the relevance realization. So maybe that's the task. You know, maybe maybe we're, I don't know what we're supposed to be realizing, um, but I, it, it feels like there, there is some, some information processing. Um, and, you know, I, I have a link to this map. If you guys want to look at, there's a PDF of the, uh, the self-organizing universe, uh, the, the emerging paradigm of evolution, and yeah, the handbook of human computation. Uh, th those, are, those are all going to be linked in here. So let me just hop over to the beautiful money bit again. So we're talking a little bit about evolution. You know, I'm going to try to see, I'm not trying to remember where Galia is. You know, I'm, I'm kind of frustrated with myself because I did not. Uh, here's the sacred economics book. I'm just going to go through Charles's stuff. Here's the, the Cello Foundation. Um, and there, this was a, a medium post they did in April of 2022, uh, talking about the climate collective. Uh, 
and they're bringing the regenerative finance to the masses. And so they were um, working with their toucan uh, protocol layer. And I thought it was interesting that there, there, was, there were two comments on this post, one from Daniel Pinchbeck, who said that he was the editor and publisher of Eisenstein's Sacred Economics. Um, and I wasn't familiar with Pinchbeck. I, I think probably people who know more about all of this stuff do. They said, uh, you know, I was talking to Jason and he said, yeah, no, he's very well known. Uh, but his focus is sort of like shamanic stuff and psychedelics. And again, Charles has his own sort of psychedelic stuff going on too. Um, so this idea, again, I keep saying that I feel like it's not just a material reality that they're looking to coordinate, but a collective unconscious or um, people who are in altered states of consciousness. Yeah, that here's, uh, sorry, uh, Pinchbeck. Why is this not? Uh, yeah, exploring shamanism and via ceremonies and was like a Burning Man participant. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting that he was the editor because then it, it does have a different um, a different vibe to it. Oh, and so now I'm going to go ahead and play the Lover Earth part. So, again, remember, I was talking about the the mythos, uh, the Camelot, the round table, the falconry, the, the troubadour uh, and the love. And then so here is Charles. Uh, talking about the the his vision of the switching from the uh unconditional love of mother earth to uh the lover earth uh, uh, program let me see transition there I thought this is interesting. So when he says, he kind of, he was like, well, let me just tell you, I was channeling the oversoul Let's of humanity. Let's just say I channeled the oversoul of humanity. <laughs> I wish I had a more palatable way of putting it, but here I am. Yeah, so I, I think we could maybe think about how he was channeling the oversoul of humanity. <laughs> In conversation with Earth. And she says, I am Gaia and I am dying. And it's already too late. There's another spirit waiting to inhabit Earth after this extinction. It's happened before. Reincarnation happens in this planetary body, and there's another spirit waiting to come. Your relationship with this spirit, this is no longer Mother Earth. This is Lover Earth. You will not just take. You will give and receive equally. So... How will they keep track of giving and receiving equally? Well, that, I think that that would be the Web3 protocol layer. You will co-create. Now, I think co-create, again, that's this decentralized emergence. And she very much wants to come and join you and to bring life back into this planet. But for that to happen, first, there must be a courtship. You must demonstrate your fitness for this partnership. Now the fitness, I feel like that's the fitness landscape. That's like, that's the sorting through of the fitness landscape and the gamification, the, the, the genetic algorithms. How do you do that? It's of course through gifts. Anything that you do, anything that you put out into the world that is in service to life, because remember, life creates the conditions for life. Anything in service to life is part of the courtship ritual that says to this spirit, yes, I am a worthy lover. And so this means anything from regenerative agriculture to the regeneration of the social body. 
anything in service to life is a prayer. Now, the regeneration of the social body, that will be sort of part of the social prescribing. That'll be, you know, what he's not saying is that this is the sustainable development goals. That exercises effects beyond our comprehension. Because, in fact, the world does not work according to Newtonian force. In interbeing, the causal principle is morphic resonance. Now, this is interesting. Um, Let me see. I'm just going to pause for a second. Um, So there's the video that uh, Charles did with Sepp Kamvar of Cello, um, where they actually talk about morphic resonance and this idea of uh, like criticality and when, you know, groups get together and have sort of a new way of thinking or being that once it reaches this critical state, it can like manifest or make be available like at far distances. And um, so I, I sort of feel like the, the whole network effect coordination mechanism, like beyond the self-organizing criticality and creating emergent new ideas is this idea that somehow they will be able to maximize um, our, our speed up evolution uh, towards this noetic hive mind consciousness uh, thought form uh, by doing AI mediated coordination of, uh, you know, cognitive or psychic knowing and then jumping it through the morphic field like around the world and then like literally speeding things up really quickly. So again, the, the conversation around AI, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that it, 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 we shouldn't be concerned about work and all of these other things that are going on, but the thing that's being left out is the protocol layer and some of this self-organizing theory that's going to happen through that. And it's not just AI against people. It is a biohybrid design. It's AI managing people. It's like us becoming the pets of the AI. So, sorry, let me... As Rupert Sheldrake describes it, the knowledge that any change that happens in one place generates a field of change that allows that change to happen more easily everywhere else. Any act of kindness, any act of generosity creates a field of kindness and a field of generosity. And that means that we are all equally powerful, that no act is wasted, and that every act has cosmic significance. And I'm not, you know, I, to me, that that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, I, I, I do like the idea that we have agency, that it matters, that acts of kindness matter. I mean, that's really a lot of what I do when I go out and I set my intentions is this idea. Um, but I'm not standing up in front of like a whole room full of um, uh, people, uh, you know, central bankers uh, doing this. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of frustrated with myself because I'm not finding the thing that I want to I wanted to show but I'm going to I'm I want to play this now. So this is this is Charles saying who was at this event. I'm noticing here at this conference for one thing it's quite extraordinary the mix of people that we have. I speak at a lot of conferences but I rarely am present with people who are really in um uh elite positions in what you might call the matrix. When people come to my events or my retreats, it's usually because they are, you know, uh, a former 
uh, Obama administration official or a former hedge fund manager who's kind of left that world. But here we're having you know, people from the World Bank, from the Federal Reserve, from, I mean, Larry Summers was here, my goodness. Uh, that world and a world of tea ceremonies and yoga and myth-making, uh, Rianne Eisler, uh, Sherry Mitchell, uh, people speaking about indigenous knowledge, uh, all in the same conference together. Magic. Yeah. Okay. So, so, sorry, let me, let me just get back to, oh gosh, I think I've lost my. Sorry, I've got a. Uh, the beautiful money one. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, he's, there were a lot of important people there. That, that event mattered. That event mattered quite a bit. Um, and I'm just going to sort of zoom in a little bit. Um, Douglas Rushkoff was there, this cypherpunk guy. Um, just to sort of clarify about Sepp Kamvar and why I'm so upset about Cello, uh, Charles, and, and I've, I've, you know, I, I've kind of been like stalk tweeting his page just to like keep asking, like, how does this connect with your ties to Cello? How, you know, and I'm not being a snark. I don't have full on snarkiness. I'm like only medium snarky about it, but he's never answered. And if you actually, if you look at the, his um, t uh, Twitter like I, I, I went in and I did a search for Cello on his Twitter handle. There's no results for Cello. He's never tweeted about Cello. He's never tweeted about Sep Camvar. Um, he's never tweeted about digital currency. So if you just sort of followed, and again, maybe he doesn't have the most active account that way. Um, but this this entity is a real problem. And for me, you know, Sep Camvar, you know, he while he was at, MIT and heading their social uh, computing, he developed this Montessori program, right? That that Wildflower Montessori that on the surface looked great, like natural materials, natural light, wooden toys, but it had artificial vision on, on the ceiling, artificial vision cameras tracking the children. Like you can see, um, this is a view from the camera and they were tracking the kids. You know, I'm just gonna go ahead and play this clip because it's just this, this is only two minutes. Um, it was tracking the children and their social behaviors in the classroom. Now, at the time that I, I you know, I, I, I first wrote about this, I knew that this was for impact finance, but I didn't understand that about the ant computer and training children up for the ant computer. So when, when Charles is talking about his beautiful money and, um, you know, being so chivalrous and courting uh, a earth lover with beautiful things about social relationships, this is what's standing behind it. The third principle is that it's a lab school dedicated to understanding. And this is Sepp Kamvar, by the way. There's Sepp Kamvar, and then there's, at the end, there's a bit from a guy who helped develop the sensor networks and install them in the toys. Children and advancement of the Montessori method. And so we explore things like putting video cameras in the ceiling and using image recognition algorithms to understand what each child is working on. Using image recognition algorithms to understand what each child is working on, right? These children were a test bed. At each time. And then feeding that data into data visualizations that show what each child is working on during the day, during the month, and during the year. 
And so we can create software that's like an acupuncture for society that can unblock people's natural ability to heal their world. And what's interesting about the software that we created for these schools is that it's a self-limiting technology. It comes in and kickstarts a social process. But the software plays in foundational but ultimately limited role in the ecosystem that it fosters. Shoes in the trade. What does this have to do with data? It can mean a lot if you are wildflower schools. They wanted to track activities within the classroom. This way, the school can better understand what activities are working and what the children like to do. We help them take their idea from concept to a fully developed product. This includes doing hardware, firmware, enclosures, and mobile and web applications to help bring the data to life. The shoes have a sensor right here. The tray also has a sensor right here. We use Bluetooth and an in-classroom network to make it work seamlessly. By creating new data, Wildflower schools can now have more insight into how to teach more effectively. At Lab 651, we make new things possible. All you need is an idea and maybe a pair of shoes and a tray. A pair of shoes and a tray. That's, yeah, that's a little shocking. And uh, let me see. The uh, I'm going to put, so, okay, do-do-do-do-do. Okay, so that's SAP, CAMVAR, yeah. So, so and Charles's work was their inspiration, essentially. Um, this is uh, a, a Medium post from someone uh, in their Berlin office um, and saying how excited. This is from 2019. Cello, it's C-E-L-O. Uh, means purpose in Esperanto. But I think cello is also like a cell, so a holon. And and you'll see the logo is uh, two intersecting circles, which is the Ven or the Vesica Pisces. And so, you know, she's talking about her welcome employee package. And uh, the welcome employee package comes with a uh, uh, one of a copy of Charles's book on sacred economics and uh, you know a little pin and she's just so excited and so you know again he's not just an advisor his essentially the ethos of his book which is built on the work of others is is really core to their whole program and again I encourage you if you're not familiar with cello uh, Leo Saracino has done quite a bit of work on it um, over at Silicon Icarus so if you just go to Silicon Icarus you if you google Leo Saracino Silicon Icarus um, there's a lot of stuff that will come up. I think he has like seven or eight pieces. Um, I, I will just add, since we've we've also got a bit of the, um, uh, you know, the the mythos uh, involved and the Vesica Pisces, this idea that it is, um, it's it's also been used in Freemasonry. Uh, it's a proportioning system in architecture, and there's a design, and I think it's from the early 20th century, like Art Nouveau, uh, the, the chalice well in Glastonbury, um, it has a Vesica Pisces on it, and there's there's the image here, and it says it's the interface between the spiritual and physical world. And so I, I do feel like that's what this digital programming is about, is, is to try to use a, a digital uh, network to tap into our spirituality. Um, and again, it's it's either the, the fish symbol for Christ or a picture of the vulva and a symbolic femininity. Uh, but there there's, um, I think, 
Glastonbury was supposed to be, is it Avalon, where King Arthur uh, ended up, this chalice well, uh, is in Glastonbury, near Glastonbury Tor. And uh, there's the, the another picture of the well. And it is, the, the wells are a, a, a used in mythology as gateways to the spirit world. And um, there's a, a sword that bisects the circles, a possible reference to Excalibur, the legendary sword, sword of King Arthur. Uh, so there's there's the Camelot aspect uh, that goes along with with this this depiction of the Vesca Pisces. Um, yeah. So, and let's see what else I've got. So anyway, the the whole stuff with with Sepp Kampfar really obsessed. Now Sepp Kampfar worked at MIT Media Lab before being at Cello. Uh, he was colleagues with Sandy Pentland. Uh, actually, here's an image of him weirdly on Joy Ito's Flickr account. <laughs> um, it's a it's a picture of uh, uh, Sepp Kampfar, Kent Larson, and Sandy Pentland at Joy Ito's house in taken in 2012. So this is right before they developed Sandy Pentland worked with Clippinger to develop the Open Mustard Seed Project. Um, um, so he knows these guys, the guys that are working on all of the human dynamics. And um, this is just a, talking about the Windhover transition uh, using digital identity. So this idea that the government is behind all of this really is sets aside the actual history, that this was developed with intention in the academic setting in a, depart, in a, in a university that had a lot of defense interest ties, is the, the home of the digital economy, right? The, the cryptocurrency space, MIT Media Lab's cryptocurrency space. Um, and they were developing ID3, not the government. The government, I mean, NIST was doing something, but uh, ID3 wanted something that was even more flexible than what uh, NIST was developing. Uh, so they brought together in 2013, so it hasn't even been that long, just 10 years, they met up in uh, uh, New Hampshire, and I think John Clippinger has a, a house there. His consultancy is based in Jefferson, New Hampshire. It's uh, 18 miles from Mount Washington, so it's right, it's, you know, Mount Washington uh, State Park uh, public lands goes pretty much right up to Jefferson. So it's almost like Clippinger lives as close to Bretton Woods uh, as he can get. And that's where the retreat was. Um, then there was another retreat. And I don't know if this is at the same place the following year uh, to continue working it out. This is Clippinger in the green shirt in front and uh, Michaelia Uliru, the Romanian uh, scientist uh, here in the front row. So working on developing the digital identity plan uh, these Windhover principles for digital identity were uh, adopted with support from 21 top Bitcoin and digital currency companies, right? So this is essentially what Bobby Kennedy is asking for, is like a world run by cryptocurrency companies, pretty much, and let the market decide. That's that's what he literally said at the Bitcoin conference. So um, he and he's using government authoritarianism to move us in this direction. So, you know, in addition to the people who were supporting, like Ripple was closely involved um, in that, uh, the, the paper, I don't, I, I wouldn't sign up for a subscription to that scribid or whatever. Uh, but one of the papers was uploaded by this guy, Joel Dietz. Um, and he was, uh, led this swarm report. Uh, evidently he was also, uh, part of the early Ethereum network and helped, had some role in the development of the MetaMask, uh, program, which are the, these early, uh, digital wallets. 
Uh, this is this is him deeds. So the, the digital identity thing has been going on for a long time. Um, and then I have Uluru and you, you should really check out. I, th I told Jason, I feel like we need to do a whole se session on her. Um, but her focus is uh, she describes herself as an alchemist innovating at the nexus of AI, IoT, and blockchain, um, championing emerging tech as a business slash government advisor. Uh, her PhD is in robotics and distributed intelligent systems design. Uh, and, you know, if you just walk through, she she's an advisor to the Consilience Project, and that goes back to um, E.O. Wilson bringing together uh, the physical sciences and the social sciences. Um, she is uh, describes herself as the chief AI alchemist at SingularityNet, uh, and then she's also an advisor, uh, Global Agenda Council advisor at the World Economic Forum. Uh, but what I find is more interesting is so she was part of Jim Rutt's Game B. And again, that's um, using blockchain to develop the Game B. And she's a strategic impact officer for Input Output Hong Kong, which is Cardano and Charles Hoskinson, um, and part of the Oxford Blockchain Strategy Education, whatever. So Michaela is involved in a lot. And again, I just have this image of the game be decentralization. Um, and, you know, Jim Rutt, he, 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 came out of MIT, uh, he was a trustee at Santa Fe Institute and was working on big chain database, big chain DB and evolutionary AI. And so I think that actually uh, he was linked with Trent McConaughey of Ocean Protocol. And, um, you know, I think it's Bruce Pons is another founder of Ocean Protocol and they have quite a bit of their workforce in Romania. And so I'm, I'm assuming uh, Uliaru might be the contact uh, for the tech in Romania uh, that Ocean Protocol has there. But there's like a lot of synergy between Game B and Ocean Protocol. And it's interesting because what Rutt was pushing early on was something called the Emancipation Party uh, that was pushing UBI and a citizen's wage and non-rivalrous public goods. But I feel like the Emancipation Party probably is a bit transpartisan, which is the like healing the divide that RFK Jr. is going after. Um, and, and part of... Uh, what Game B is involved with is uh, meta psychotech, meta psychotechnology, uh, and Civium. So that is the collective problem solving and using um, neuro hacking and nootropics and psychedelics uh, to get into that collective problem solving phase. Um, so I think what Charles is talking about with the money is all interconnected with this stuff. And then we have uh, Rianne Eisler, who uh, gave a keynote that night at Bancor and uh, She's she's very old. She's in her 90s. Uh, she and her husband were both connected to the systems engineering program with Irvin Laszlo, uh, where they were revisiting Darwin and saying, no, actually, Darwin wasn't survival of the fittest. Darwin was much more about co uh, cooperation and mutual aid, which, you know, on the one hand sounds great, but we know where this is all going. Um, and so her her husband, who had been connected to the Navy, um, he and she were working, they, they gathered, they were gathered by Laszlo in Budapest, uh, uh, let's see, uh, to look, to develop a new perspective on the Cold War, 
like through mutual cooperation. And that's that's how, so th this merging of the new version of evolution, which is described in this interview Eisler did with her husband before he died, was that he was talking about Darwin um, being out in front of the idea of chaos theory and self-organizing systems. And uh, that that spontaneity was actually much more uh, prominent in the books than survival of the fittest. And so um, bringing this to the foreground again, I think that the, um, this is sort of connected to E.O. Wilson and the social insects. And, um, you know, we've got Laszlo, who's, you know, as usual, the systems theorist, uh, connected through his son, um, Alexander, to Pavel Leksha, the transhumanist, uh, informed by Ludwig von Bertenlanfi, who is a systems engineer and a Nazi. <laughs> um, and you know, this idea of a world homeostat, which Charles talks about a lot, is this idea of a steady state economy, a circular economy. Um, and then this would be accomplished through these community currencies, of which uh, Will Ruddick uh, is one of the, the, the biggest use cases. Again, uh, Jem Bendel, who was featured uh, recently in The Defender um, with his new book, Breaking Together, uh, has been working with Ruddick since 2012. And what I always thought was really interesting about Ruddick was that he actually, he is a physicist. He was ABD, which is all but dissertation, at University of Colorado Boulder in high energy physics. And um, eventually, I guess he got a PhD in development economics, uh, doing impacts and modeling of private credit systems and community currency systems. And then he was based as an associate scholar in complementary currency out of the University of Cumbria, which is where Jem Bendel is based. Um, but he has an interesting background because he, you know, he was working on this community inclusion program in Kenya since 2010. And, you know, he's he's literally finishing up his dissertation in high energy physics and decides to do a total pivot and then go, go into the Peace Corps, um, you know, do the language training uh, in Kishwahili um, uh, so that he could go and implement this new community currency. Um, and then eventually after that, he uh he worked briefly. He only spent like 11 months as as a Peace Corps person. So I'm assuming it was just to get the language training. And then he was a consultant in Geneva on this community currency, uh, Community Forge, um, to develop out the Kenya model, this uh, grassroots economics of Serifu. And then um, he started to implement that. Right before he implemented that, he spent a year doing being the director of community currency for Bancor, which is Galia uh, Benarzi, and then went on uh, to found Grassroots Economics. Um, although I guess there's some overlap because he founded it in 2009. So he founded it right after as he left the Peace Corps. So he was doing all of this at the same time, working with Bancor on Grassroots Economics and digitally based community currencies. Um, now, what I thought was kind of interesting was while he was in Boulder for three years, he was a consultant to something called Shifting Culture. Um, and I happened to find Shifting Culture here. Um, it was, it's also known as the Trauma Dynamics Institute. Um, and I would say that's something that I've noticed a lot with the climate narrative, with the Bendel, with the Joanna Macy, um, even with Eisenstein, is this idea of collapse and trauma. Like, I think that there's a bit an intentional trauma program that's built in. Um, and so it's interesting that the shifting culture, like you need trauma to shift the culture. So this Trauma Dynamics Institute uh, was based in Boulder. It's framed as an educational uh, institute. Uh, I guess it was, I don't know if it says when it, it was, uh, I guess, founded, started in 2003. 
It's run. It was run by this guy, Eric Wolterstorff, um, who is a cultural psychosocial development. Sorry. He's an expert in cultural psychosocial development and group trauma, particularly the behavior of societies responding to existential long term threats. Okay, so this is his background. Um, and then he's the head of a crisis management firm uh, and doing turnarounds in various programs. Uh, so he's a, a trauma psychotherapist involved in group trauma uh, based in Boulder. Uh, he also does work in nation building and social impact investment, right? So this is this is who Will was with before. Um, their Sovereignty First program, their mission is uh, to strengthen the psychosocial capacity of countries in four measurable dimensions. Inclusion, common understanding, trust, and self-governance. And I'm assuming the digital currencies will be a part of that. Um, uh, these are their investment advisors, uh, Kirk Lie Lieberman, uh, Brett Wayman, and Audrey Salian. Uh, she's with uh, Rianta Capital Zurich. Uh, impact investing as, at investment. Uh, CEO of Global Magni Asset Management, right? So these are all people who are dealing in uh, trauma behavior and social impact investment. And then it's it's interesting that uh, Michael Brown, who was the sort of the disgraced uh, head of FEMA after the Katrina, ended up landing at this firm. <laughs> um, he, he returns to disaster work in 2008. Um, and Mr. Wolterstorff, the, the head of the organ, the consulting firm, uh, said he justified the hire saying, well, he knows how organizations function and dysfunction in crisis situations, which has tremendous value. So that's a bit creepy that the, the ex-FEMA uh, guy uh, landed in this Boulder nonprofit that then moved on into uh, community currency and social physics. And, you know, this was getting a lot of coverage. It even made the mainstream. It, Newsweek magazine uh, had a whole article on grassroots economics in 2019. Uh, it is an impact award winner. So they need the they need the digital currency again to coordinate everything um, and to work on the physics of money, which is uh, like negative interest rates and velocity of money and all of these sorts of things that you know who knew you would go into high energy physics, work at, at Stanford part, linear particle accelerators, and then shift into community currency. But he knows Jim Bendel really well. Uh, they wrote a paper together on um, complementary currencies in Kenya, uh, the case of the Bangla Pesa. And uh, you can see here Ruddick and Jem Bendel out of the University of Cumbria. And, you know, they, they were talking about the fact that this whole program was reliant on donors. So this is what the giving pledge is. This is what, you know, the patriotic billionaires are. This is what is going to happen if we allow ourselves to live in the protocol layer, it's going to be run by the billionaires, not by the regular people. They're going to tell us it's d democratic and decentralized, but it won't be. It, it, it's all running on the flow of cash from the tech billionaire class. Um, and yeah, so uh, they, they were issued to community members and it said that um, they would pay for trash pickup and tree planting. Um, and they so they picked up 20 tons of trash and planted thousands of trees um, and uh they, that's how they use their money. And so I think it's really important uh, to know that they develop these certain use cases and then they spin them out other places. So uh, there was a Little Haiti program in Miami, again, where RFK Jr. just was presenting to the Bitcoin people because it's the Bitcoin land, uh, the crypto land. And they've tapped a local guy in Little Haiti, the Little Haiti community of Miami to do what? 
trash pickup for crypto. And so they're modeling the same program, darn it. And um, this was, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure if the, I don't, you know what, I don't have the date on this. I'm not sure if it's pre or post lockdowns, uh, but they're talking about like picking up trash and be rewarded in crypto for every pound of trash that you clean. And so that that's the beginning of where this is headed. Um, let's see, is this? Yeah, I'll just play this really quick. This is this guy, Nandy Martin, Captain Haiti, and he's branded as like a Marvel superhero. Uh, that message received loud and clear. It's your responsibility to take care of the trash, the plastic bottles, even if you're not the one that threw it down. The lobsters who live here will thank you. So are the dolphins, the manatees, the turtles, the fish, and the sharks. All right. So, yeah. And plastic bottles, I will just point out that, um, uh, you know, Mr. Camelot you know, decided to fund, you know, his river keeping with uh, by funding a water bottle company with plastic bottles. Um, but so this is Will Ruddick in the middle. Evidently, these these vouchers that they were handing out were illegal. <laughs> and so they, they, they were threatened with jail time with the people who participated. So nice going, Will, to like, so they had to like crowdfund uh, their court fees. Um, I guess this happened in 2018, and they're presenting it to Bancor, and and this is Bendel uh, talking about it. So he's still he's been connected to Will Ruddick all this time, um, and again, this is a guy who's also supposed to be connected to Extinction Rebellion, um, and and the quote uh, this is Will Ruddick I guess talking about the the you know running afoul of the law in Kenya. Basically, we printed pieces of paper that had that has uh, meant that people could eat more meals a day. So what is wrong with the world? Will Ruddick at the uh, UNRSID uh, Ramex Association Cumbria University Research Seminar with uh, Bancor and Galila Benartzi. So uh, Bancor has been behind all of this. And, you know, in 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 some of these use cases with, with uh, yeah, so let me just go. So... You know, I, I kind of called out Bendel on this. And I'm like, yeah, I see what you're about. Like, I'm, I here are all the links to the maps. Like, I know what your Web3 game is. And and so this is how Bendel re replies. He says that my game, um, also described as sweet doomer grift by somewhat similarly wide-eyed as yourself, includes growing organic food in agroforestry projects in partnerships with NGOs in Indonesia, helping local seaweed farmers get better incomes, co-leading meditation retreats with Buddhist temples and playing devotional music. Now, I will say that the Buddhist part is really central to this because the, the mindfulness and the meditation, again, not that I have anything against it being used within its appropriate cultural context, but the Western appropriation, this guy, you know, Schumacher was framed as Buddhist economics. Uh, William Drayton early on with Ashoka, you know, framing it as Buddhist uh, mindfulness. They, they've targeted Bhutan uh, as their happiness measurement economy, like the nation of happiness. This is on purpose, this idea of yoga and mindfulness. It is it is moving people into the unified mind space. And again, I don't I don't have a problem with people whose cultural practice it is pursuing that in that regard. I do have a problem with like all of these things that they're talking about, agroforestry, organic food and seaweed harvest. Those all sound like fine projects. They're going to be connected to regenerative finance. 
Um, they, they are, and they're not going to say that they're not because they are doing it. So they're just going to tell you about the nice sounding projects. They're not going to tell you about how the satellite surveillance is going to be woven into all of this, right? And so I think him talking about um, meditation retreats and devotional music, that is part of the collective consciousness access point um, that is important for us to like pull out that thread and notice that. Um, so yeah, so he says he's so grateful for his freedoms because his university pays him to go do all these things. But I'm like, you know, my reply, it says, it seems like you're playing the role of a pawn to advance the convergence agenda. Maybe not for the first time. Maybe the third time will be your charm. Um, experts like you get the ball rolling for sustainable cybernetic futures of measured mindfulness. And imagine that we're so callow that we don't understand what you're saying about Web3 refi token engineering, right? They're, they're calling me wide-eyed, right? And and he has no idea, like, how much I know about exactly what they're up to. Um, so, again, um, yeah, I said using the term wide-eyed is a way to, de de to deflect from the fact that you're either ignorant of the terrain in which you operate or you are an accomplice. Rogan and Peterson, he'd also cop copied Rogan and Peterson on this or whatever. I said they're also in my map with sustainability, game B, and integral theory. Um, so, yeah, that was just like my frustration over this. Um, you know, th this is, again, just to reiterate about... Uh, Kennedy, you know, he's he was tweeting on May 3rd about the need for uh, digital currencies. Just as biodiverse ecosystems are resilient, so too will our economy be more resilient if it has a diverse ecology of currencies, not just a single centrally controlled one. Um, and yeah, that's straight up Leotard. Like, like the, Kennedy is part of all of this. And, and that's why... Eisenstein. And oh, the other thing that's interesting, the Windhover principles, I was talking about digital identity. Um, it's actually a poem. I don't know if you say Windhover, Windhover. Uh, the poem is by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And it was uh, written in the 1870s and published in 1914. And it says, Windhover is another name for the common kestrel, Falco Tinuculus. Uh, the name refers to the bird's ability to hover in midair while hunting prey. So again, we've got the falconry coming back in in the Windhover, um, Windhover aspect. Uh, I'm just going to kind of keep slogging through this so I don't have to do this map next. Um, here's the, okay, so here we've got, oh, so... Yeah, so I, t I talked about Rianne Eisler and her husband, uh, you know, tutored by Irvin Laszlo. Uh, he's definitely uh, a man behind the curtain. Uh, here is ICUS. I've talked about this uh, before. The uh, International Conference of the Universe—sorry, uni the International Conference of the Unity of the Sciences—and um, that's sponsored by Reverend Sung Young Moon in South Korea. Um, it started in 1972. The first one was in New York. They were in different locations, uh, but definitely backed by the Moonies and. Um, the ICUS was bringing together the physical sciences and the social sciences with sacred religion. And Laszlo uh, was uh, on the committee and presenting uh, the second year of that, the role of general systems theory in the conceptual synthesis of the coming age. So, you know, don't tell me they didn't know what digital currency was coming. Um, at the, the science, at the conference, they were presenting the modern modern science and moral values. And we'll hear a lot more about a moral economy, um, the moral, not just ESG, but morality specifically, uh, bringing together uh, coherency among laws and principle of the natural sciences 
uh, a, a unity that embraces not only natural science, but the humanities and the social sciences. And this comes back to E.O. Wilson's consilience, um, which actually was later than 1972. So maybe E.O. Wilson got it from them. Um, but yeah, so Irvin Laszlo is sort of the coordinator on the world homeostat. Again, also a mentor, an academic mentor to this woman, Joanna Macy, who works on deep adaptation with Jem Bendel. Uh, Charles Eisenstein also talks about deep adaptation. And she's also into uh, Buddhist philosophy, an eco-Buddhist philosopher. Um, again, uh, focused on trauma. And I think this is trauma-based mind control. And, you know, honestly, as a parent of a young adult, I'm really pissed at the way way in which young people have been uh, tormented, um, not just through the lockdowns, but also through the world ending narratives, um, to think that they have no future. That really pisses me off. And, and that's something that's happened on purpose um, to, to move people in the direction of accepting all of this, to accept living in the protocol layer. And, you know, this is a, a quote from Macy's uh, no relation to the Macy conferences, Macy's, unfortunately, but um, she's talking, this is a quote, to be alive in this beautiful self-organizing universe, to participate in the dance of life with senses, to perceive it, lungs that breathe it, organs that draw nourishment from it is a wonder beyond words. And so she's definitely part of the systems theory. Uh, she has a lot of different books, but again, when you start looking at the books, like one of them is called World as Lover, World as Self. So that to me is just exactly what Charles was talking about. That was published published in 1991. Uh, she has another one published that same year called Mutual Causality in Buddhism and General Systems Theory. So they're, they're mixing meditation with the systems management. And I'm sorry, I don't know why I put the, these letters on here. But um, here's another one, thinking like a mountain towards a council of all beings. And that's the interbeingness that Charles speaks of. So um, lots of the conceptual overlaps there. Um, and Again, we've got Leotaire. Uh, you know, Leotaire was looking at creating this ecology of currencies, uh, and he was behind this uh, uh, the European currency unit. Um, so he was an engineer. He was a currency engineer and a currency trader, very much. And I, I just have this map. You can see him down here. Um, you know, a mentor to Galia. Um, you know, connected to B Protocol. Uh, he informed uh, Will Ruddick, he informed Eisenstein. Actually, uh, they said that, uh, Galia said that Leah Terre and she, you know, loved Eisenstein's sacred economics books and his climate book. Um, and then we've got, I'm just gonna hop over to Zargum. Did I get all of Ruddick done? Let me just see. going to look oh here I just have a little bit more on Will Reddick so this is his twi Twitter he doesn't have a lot of tweets like 2900 um, grassroots economics uh, you know and he's really playing up the you know handmade crafts here uh, basket weaving uh, local you know local culture and I think this idea about Incorporating culture into the digital economy is is important for the AI. Um, here, come see what grassroots economics is all about. It's about indigenous blockchain, and and they're pushing this really hard. Uh, indigenous and also Af Afrofuturism. Um, uh, this is a, a a tweet from May fifteenth. 
Grassroots economics empowering local communities to shape their economic des destiny. It fosters bottom-up approaches to development where community members actively participate in decision-making and build social cohesion. So again, the actively participate in decision-making will be through tokenization. Maybe not now, but eventually. That's the goal of social physics is that is the tokenized democracy. Uh, and then he talks about an economic commons, uh, a collective agreement to manage mutual credit for shared prosperity. And, and this is all the stuff you'll hear about human flourishing. It establishes rules and norms for resource use and harnesses the power of cooperation and solidarity to create a, an equitable and sustainable economic system. And again, that's they're acting as though those communities didn't have that before Western interests came in with their digital tokens, right? I mean, that's that's wrong. Uh, community inclusion currency, a grassroots and circular instrument for resource coordination. And that's everything that I'm talking about, about complexity and emergence and criticality. Um, CIC promotes social cohesion and draws from indigenous practices of mutual aid. And I, I think that that's really like a lot of BS. And you know, my concern about some of the stuff with um, <coughs> um, indigenous practice and mutual aid is that they're actually like incorporating it into the protocol layer, this idea of chamas, which are mutual credit societies, that they're building that into the blockchain as well. Um, and yeah, let's let's work on it. And then my reply was, did, did, do you tell the Kenyans that this is about turning their economies into cybernetic games of social physics towards convergence slash emergence? And they, they, never, they never respond when I ask these questions. Um, again, this is, this is just a, um, an image from one of Leo's uh, writings at Silicon Icarus talking about uh, the bonding curves uh, in uh, Serifu and grassroots economics. So I really encourage you to go look at that and um, yeah, here's here's the quote. As of December 2022, the nonprofit behind Serifu and many other community inclusion currencies, grassroots economics has found a new home on Cello, right? So really, Charles Eisenstein is directly connected to Will Ruddick through Cello um, and Cello's participation, like uh, grassroots economics ties to Cello and the token engineering. Um, and you know what? I'm if you're if you're still hanging with me, I'm gonna. Um, I want to go ahead and play the the clip from the blockchain highlights. Um, it's 10 minutes, but I think it really helps you understand the way in which that they're masking this idea of, um, you know, basket weaving and carrying and flourishing. When you see the people who are in the room and the history that comes behind it of what Bretton Woods actually was, that it set up the World Bank and the IMF that essentially... Um, imposed structural adjustment on the global south and made them dependent on humanitarian aid that's now going to be decentralized on digital currency, um, you'll see that it's just such a fiction. So one sec. This is 10 minutes. And I'm, I'm just going to... This is from a 40-minute talk, um, but I, I distilled it down. But this says a lot. And again, Charles was a keynote speaker here. The monetary system is right here. And 75 years to the day that the 1944 Bretton Woods Agreement was signed, Bettina Bancor has brought 250 delegates from all over the world, from a myriad of disciplines, not to remake or replace that image, but perhaps to enhance it, to redetermine what value is, and certainly to see if crypto and blockchain can be used as a means to make it more inclusionary. 
And again, to, to determine what value is, and that's what was happening at this Bancor gathering, was they were saying, okay, now we've, we've switched to a new model, and the new model is going to be like, we're going to value things like ecology and community and the household and social relationships, which is all going to be tokenized. Here's a look at Bretton Woods 75. Things like the World Bank, IMF, NGOs have done a lot of good. Uh, there are other people who would disagree. <laughs> yeah. There were writers. Join me in looking at our society and our economy as they can be. And we need that now more than ever. Even former military leaders. And of course, leaders in the blockchain and crypto space to reflect upon and rethink economies of the future. 75 years ago, 700 men gathered here to design a framework for global economic cooperation. Global economic cooperation. So I think we need to understand that the economic cooperation isn't just about economies. It's it's moving towards systems engineering, social systems engineering. That they hoped would end world wars. Economic cooperation and interdependence create peace. And that's the historical backdrop to realize the significance of this place. Just part of the reason why the team at Bancor spent the last year organizing and curating this very unique, forward-thinking, yet historically observant conference on the 75th anniversary. All right. And I just want to say, too, so they spent a year organizing it. This was a very expensive gathering with very high-level people. Um so this is why even though Bancor, I think it pulls back and you don't hear about it so much anymore, like the structures that are being built there, it may not be that name, like it may go into hiding and then regroup as something else. But the individuals who were in these rooms were significant. And sometimes it's hard to tell in the crypto space, like what's just a fly by night, um, you know, operation and which which ones have substance. But to, to pull off an event like this, you have to understand that, that, that Bancor is a major player in the game to host and get to all of these people to show up. And again, um, most of their engineering is based in Israel. And uh, Galia, through her, you know, her aunt is Netanyahu's third wife, right? So they're they're definitely connected. So we're in the gold room here at Bretton Woods, and it's where the Bretton Woods agreement was signed. Brock, how's it feel to be here? Well, honored, privileged. I mean, his historic. And to be able to have a conversation about the future of the monetary system 75 years later in this same space and to sit at this table, how lucky are we? It all so I do want to mention, too, that uh, Brock Pierce was an advisor at Bancor. And again, remember, Charles was talking about, oh, we just need a crisis to, to move these uh, peripheral activities to the center when the center collapses. All happened here 75 years ago that really set up the post-war economic order, set up the World Bank, the IMF, the World Trade Organization. Uh, the whole structure of international capital flows were really set by the way in which uh, the people here decided to sign an agreement for setting up these kind of institutions. There are alternatives that they could have picked. They could have picked uh, Bancor, which Keynes had pushed for, a one global currency. Instead, they allowed for continued national currencies. Now, I didn't know that Bancor, before I watched this video, I didn't understand that Keynes and Schumacher, because Schumacher is really important. That's based in Great Barrington, and that's the Regen Network is connected to that. Um, I didn't know that that dated to the 1940s. So essentially, it's just being revived. It's just being brought back out now that they have the distributed technologies to run it. And really put a privileged 
place for the dollar in that? One proposal that was made here was actually called Bancor, and it was made by John Keynes. He was the British Secretary of the Treasury. He suggested a supranational currency, a new currency that would be owned by no nation. He wanted this currency to be distributed essentially to all the nations in accordance with their trade balance. He thought that this would be kind of a fair way to jumpstart the post-war economic order. And the idea of having this currency for currencies is what we are like, that, that's really, really smart. That's much better than trying to create exchange pair between any two currencies. The idea of Banco was exactly to be the supranational currency that will be able to connect between all the world's currencies and to be in the middle. We see. Okay, so I just want to take a quick break here. Oh, wait a minute. I have to go back up. Um, and from Westchester oh, yeah, to Little Haiti. So that's sorry. why it's really. Uh, one sec, because uh, I want to play something from I.L. Herzog uh, that talks about language, because I think the currency of currency, the, the coordinating aspect of it, uh, let's see, uh, who, wait a minute, oh, wasn't that, wait a minute, one sec, uh, Galia, the language, Sorry. Yeah, here it is. Oh, no. That's different. Sorry, there's the language one. Um, oh, darn. Thanks for holding with me. Let me just see if I can. Uh... Oh, I actually, you know what? It's him with the holochain guy. To so, me. So, I.L. Herzog, he's just done a presentation. So, this is the bank card guy. And then he's there with Arthur Block who is um, with Holochain. So the Holochain guy is actually talking about the language and the coordinating mechanism. Uh, but they're, they're sort of tag teaming it. So I, I wanted to take a minute and just play this for you. The, we look at the evolution of communication uh, language and the forms like he was giving examples, writing and that kind of thing as critical to, to the evolution of humanity. I mean, if you just look at two things that have shaped the planet in serious ways are language and money, right? Like we literally move mountains for money and we coordinate that action through language, right? Um, so I think they're going to use money as a language. They're going to use tokens, encoded tokens. And if you think about the tokens that they have metadata attached, right? Like it's going to be a much more robust, quote unquote, language within the protocol layer than our current language that we have, like that the, 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 the smart contract encoded tokens are almost like the token can tell a whole story, right, in, in terms of how they function in the trade. Um, but it's all happening within a machine system. And so for me, there's another layer behind what what Al was showing, because his focus was a little bit more on the coordinative capacity of language. But like the earliest examples of writing, just like the first examples of, uh, you know, using it, storing data was a ledger, right? Um, the earliest examples of writing were accounting, were just tick mark type things and a little symbol of what you're counting and that kind of stuff. That's a pretty primitive form of writing, right? Where we're at now has a lot more expressive capacity. 
Well, and it's interesting too, because I think what they're trying to do is get rid of, like erase the oral traditions, like the oral histories that a lot of the storytelling, the oral history storytelling, the, those myths, like were communal storytelling and dynamic storytelling. And they, they would change like based on, like have nuance or different elements of the stories would change because they weren't written down. Um, and that's sort of central to, you know, a lot of indigenous cultures that their their primary focus is on the oral, not the written. Like the written is in some way more limited. So like it's an interesting to think about this transition of like a primitive writing that is a ledger, that is a form of communication that is uh, dehumanized from a, an oral an, an oral narrative sharing framework what what i am suggesting is that what we identify as money is a very primitive form of currency that there's actually an explosion of currencies that has occurred that we don't know how to recognize we don't even see it as a class of object so i think that that's super important like i think what he just said there i just want to like i'm going to play that again because i think that's this people are not understand like again jason would say we've never understood what money is i think and like probably we haven't understood what money is but it's even becoming more less understandable like with with the tokens that we don't we we don't know what it is has occurred that we don't know how to recognize we don't even see it as a class of object but it is a part of where we're actually encoding our social intelligence for how we coordinate in very complex ways. Encoding social intelligence for how we coordinate in complex ways. Think about that, that's a big deal. Like that is the systems engineering. We didn't have that before. Now, and again, like that, if the power dynamic weren't what it currently is, you could maybe argue that there might be benefits in being able to coordinate across time or distance in ways that we are like we don't have the sophistication to do that yet. But we don't live in that world. We live in the world of incredible power imbalance that hasn't been rectified. There's nothing that, about this that says that somehow these technologies are actually gonna rectify the imbalance. If, if they were rebellious, you wouldn't be there with the World Bank and the IMF and the central bankers, and you wouldn't be that the Treasury secretaries. That wouldn't be happening. Like you wouldn't have Brock Pierce in the same room with Larry Summers if it was truly rebellious. Like if if the system was being upended, this is happening with mutual agreement and understanding. But what they're trying to do is find a story that is palatable to move us into the next phase, which is coordinated digital currency towards noetic convergence. I mean, you you pull 250,000 people into a building and coordinate where they're going to go with a little thing called a Super Bowl ticket that has, you know, the section and the row and the seat or whatever, right? We that we're solving a complex flow problem with this little piece of paper. And we do this Now think about that too what he just said, a complex flow problem. Flow, like we've heard flow several times today, right? In terms of thinking, in terms of uh, neural synchronicity, um, getting in a mental state of flow, uh, fluid dynamics, which is the part of the swarm robotics, like it being engineered through ferrofluids. Um, all of this is, is flow. It's a physics, it's being determined by physics equations. And so a lot of how that's gonna happen is through um, 
cyber physical systems that have uh, certain um, programs, right? And and those programs are going to be the QR codes, right? And the, 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 the QR scanners, uh, which is what Robert F. Kennedy is, Jr. is asking you to donate to his campaign through a QR code, right? Um, it's, it's, it's so ridiculous when you start to think about it. Um, sorry. It's all over the place without recognizing this pattern. To me, it's so weird. It's kind of like not recognizing the, the, the class of stuff called architecture because this building's made out of wood and this one's made out of brick and this one's made out of metal and glass, but the principles are still the same. And so what, what I'm suggesting is actually that um, we've become very enamored, enamored with our industrial age currencies that are based on scarcity and a bunch of, I think, pretty kind of shallow principles in the, in the expressive capacity of currencies and whole new realms open up available to us from things like blockchain, but things like computers, it's already happening, not, not on distributed systems, but it changes the, the economics completely. And that's the token engineering. That's the token engineering that's all happening. Um, I don't know why I keep going back. Okay. Um, you know what? I'm going to, I just, oh, I want to play one more. So this is like the, 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 the cyber physical, uh, the cyber physical part I want to just touch on with Michael Zargum. So again, you know, we have Will Ruddick, he's working on their grassroots economics. You know, we have them working. Here's the um, Hong Kong Time Bank. Uh, this is from Shanzai City. So a lot, two, several more people involved. Sean Conway from IXO Foundation, who put wants to put South African to uh, toddlers, preschoolers on blockchain to build social credit. Um, and then you've got... Uh, uh, you know, you've got Will Ruddick in there too, uh, and they're they're coordinating time, right? And this is, you know, what I was saying. I have this paper: activation and synchronization of oscillatory morphodynamics and multicellular monolayer, right? But which is to say, essentially, like oscillations help determine cell cell division and creating de development of tissue and organs. And so, managing the oscillations is important. So I think that's part of this the time bank vouchers, and um, it's connected to this. Anglican settlement organization uh, that's happening um, uh, that's in Hong Kong. Uh, it, oh, guess what? You know, they, they first got their vouchers set up during the last economic crisis. And now during lockdowns, uh, they're digitizing them. Like how convenient this all is. Um, and they've got images here of their citywide time bank. Now, if you're going to look for an ant computer, Hong Kong is a pretty good place in terms of like compact. They've already kind of got it set up as an ant computer. So they're, they're focused on digital wallets, digital identities, and marketplaces in social systems. And again, this is all social services, right? When I keep saying that the churches are going to be the leaders in this, in the ant computer space, you know, I mean it. And there's still like the whole you know, colonial aspect to this. Um, here's Will Ruddick um, at the uh, presenting to the Hong Kong Council of Social Services. Um, it doesn't have a date on this, so like nobody's in a mask. I don't know if this happened before lockdowns or or what. But so Will Will Ruddick is part of it, and then uh, here's another picture of him with Sean Conway. Uh, so you've got Shanzai City, you've got IXO Foundation and Grassroots Economics all in the same room working on on the social physics. And this is one of their diagrams. And I, it's, it's, 
you know, it, it, it just says exactly this is running on the IDCC data infrastructure that Leo has written about. They call this decentralized finance for community inclusive development. And uh, right there, you've got smart philanthropy with uh, the grassroots economics, um, smart philanthropy. And on the opposite side, you've got smart pay for success social impact bonds. Um, and then you've got lots of nodes with micro enterprises and crowdfunding and digital wallets and microfinance and micro equity and, and everything just gets broken down. Um, but when he's talking about using money as a language, it looks like this, like this is what it looks like. And none of us know this language. Most of us don't have no idea what this language even is. Um, this is just the map that I, I've made of it. And I, I've kind of situated it within common fare, um, the currency of social currency of welfare, where you give the AI your stories and um, cloud mines where you where end up selling our unused brain cycles, you know, to the on blockchain and, and the slime mold simulations. You know, it's sort of nested in between all of this. Um, so that's the, the and, and then the token engineering um, oh, let me let me play this from Charles. Uh, this is him talking about designing money and just knowing that he's promoting again debt jubilee, UBI, and digital currency. Uh, we'll do this one. What Rian Eisler was talking about this dominator paradigm that's kind of baked into the cake of a story of separation, and you can see how. Oh, and of course human separate from nature would be another part of that story. So you can see how the money system, the story of money as it is currently constituted, is part of that story. It encourages competition. It generates scarcity. Even things that are fundamentally abundant become scarce when they are subject to money. We have Basically, we have a world of fundamental abundance, mastering more and more of nature, extending our mastery to the nano realm, to the genetic realm, to outer space. And everything will be, and we will solve all of our problems that way. So, there are, I wanna go into a little bit of the dynamics of money that it's not just a philosophical alignment, but the design, the structure of the agreements that we call money inevitably produce competition, scarcity, and growth. All right, so he, he knows about the money design, the money design piece. And then, yeah, so and so I just I'm going to touch on token engineering. Um, here we've got a paper on community currency, complex systems modeling of compute community inclusion currencies uh, from January of 2022 uh, from uh, Wien Universität uh, Interdisciplinary Research Institute for Crypto Economics. And this is Michael Zargam along with Andrew Clark and Alexander Mikhailov. Uh, so, you know, Zargam is one of the key folks, key guys doing the token modeling. And this is what I keep saying about the uh, like cyber physical socio-technical systems, um, multi-scale networks of networks. And when you when you this is the network effect, this is what they're trying to get at with the open mustard seed and ID3 and the digital wallets and the MetaMasks is to to build us into networks to get added value out of us. Uh, so I just have two short ones from Michael Zargam on the cybernetics and socio, like cyber physical systems and socio technical systems. 
the large sort of cyber physical system, which I'll define later, um, which is the whole world. And that world has issues in its own right, and I'm sort of interested in ways that we can use our understanding of systems to change it for the better. Um, so my talk is actually about cybernetics, which you may or may not have heard of. Um, I'm going to use this sort of limited definition where we talk about the domain of social science and economics and the methods from complexity science and systems engineering. It's more than that, but I'm not going to try to explain this whole diagram or the several transdisciplinary definitions that exist. But what really matters is that this is sort of a formal science of steering systems and not necessarily in the sense of centralized control but in the sense of systems that have their own objectives, wants, needs, and they're sort of co-steering each other. It's a sort of critical, sort of semi-formal field that's used to understand the way systems interact with each other came about in the 40s. And actually, I'll, I'll jump to this slide. Brief history from way back till recently. You have cybernetics is actually... Um, coined with respect to the Plato's reference about self the study of self-governance in one of his texts. The word cybernetic cybernetique was first used by Ampere to refer to the study of the science of government and in fact its contemporary definition is related to the early control systems and economic network theory that was being applied to everything from evolutionary biology to other social and economic regulatory systems. Yeah. And so that's, the, I mean, that's the stuff that we need to be paying attention to, in my opinion, like understanding that the physics of the ec economics and how it relates to biology, the biophysics. And then here's one more. Uh, essentially, he's talking about um, automating, like almost like automating uh the analytics and the market makers, but I feel like this is related to Basically biology. in the past with economic and social decision making, we've been sort of stuck in fuzzy territory because the highly technical systematic methods for making decisions are really hard to apply. And so in a scenario where there's not as much benefit or it might be hard to justify the benefit, we make decisions based on epistemologically weak methods or epistemologically weak thinking. And when we start automating these systems now, we have this sort of an observability and controllability of our base level transactions with each other. We actually get the benefit of this blue arrow and we can push some of these methods that are much stronger, higher up into the domain of applicability because we can embed them and abstract them away from the end users so yeah so they're automating these things so like even if you imagine that you were okay with this game they're they're automating it i mean they're they're going to put it on ai and run it as fast and hard as you can but don't worry it's going to be for your own happiness right you can get the benefit of these sort of higher validity methods without actually having to even understand that they're there. In, in an example of markets, this would be like saying, well, a market is an estimator that's attempting to discover the price of something, but it's really an emergent estimator. If you have things like a bonding curve embedded into an interface or as an adapter between two economic systems and you design that curve properly, you can actually turn it into a better estimator. Um, and in fact, you could argue that like, you swap in the Ethereum ecosystem is similar in that the liquidity pool, because of its statefulness, can serve as a stronger estimator of the price than the market would. Yeah. And so I think all of this, this automation is something that we're not really prepared to fully understand. So, so yeah, so we've just got Zargum again. This is um, uh, the 
let me see. I'll come back. Uh, this is, uh, you know, part of the Bancor protocol again, this part of the map, but just again, touching on, we've got Leotaire, Bernardsi, the B protocol. Uh, over here, we have IXO Foundation, the Impact Data Consortium that we're talking about, the Hong Kong Time Bank, Shanzai City, uh, uh, and the, the, uh, the analyst uh, for the impact, the, the treasurer uh, of the, I guess, honorary treasurer of the impact data consortium that the Hong Kong Time Bank was connected to was an analyst for uh, BlackRock uh, doing proxy voting in China, right? So you've got BlackRock people like running the, the you know, informal cooperative economy time banking. Um, over here, we have uh, Zargam uh, collaborating with Ruddick and, uh, you know, Reddick was working on this multi-currency village market simulation. And, you know, we just have papers with Zargum. So they're all sort of in this same mix. And it's off of the, the image here about Brock Pierce and Draper are just uh, up off that, that edge of the, 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 the image. So you kind of get a sense of, of the, the landscape there. Um, this is why it took me so long. It was like running all of my maps together. And here we've got um, Zargum, uh, Token Engineering, Internet of Impact, um, rebirth of cybernetics and Web3, you know, working on uh, token economics and complex adaptive systems, um, you know, the philosophy of uh, crypto economics. And this is all being framed as commoning, guys. I mean, this is um, this is all being framed as stuff that we're doing collective communal governance, right? Stuff as crazy as like cryptospheric ecotechnics. Uh, Jason and Leo did some unpacking of this Pat Rawson article about thermoeconomics and cryptospheric ecotechnics and the climate um, a couple days ago over on Argus Fest. You should go check that out. Um, so yeah, chains and chains and chains and impact and data and cybernetics. And we're just really not prepared to fully understand stand all that oh gosh uh all right so we've got okay so here here's the paper that um block science did with grassroots economics complex systems modeling of community currency you know just so you know that that's that's there aligning decentralized autonomous organizations to precedents in cybernetics so when charles is talking about um you know the new story of money this is it. Like he's th these are the people that he's with, um, but he's not actually going to be saying it out loud. Um, I'm going to run these last two and then run through the the Bretton Woods, and then I think we'll be done. Um, this is on crypto economics with Zargum. This is a short one, just a minute and a half. Uh, cybernetic economics. Token systems, token economies. For starters, the economic systems are the things that we really care about. Right. We might be engineering tokens, but the, the tokens are just sort of this now tangible economic component. It's a representation of a, a thing or a right or a, could be a good, could be a service. It could be functionally a currency. But at the end of the day, we actually engineer them in order to drive a certain behavior in the drive a certain behavior. We engineer them to drive a certain behavior. Now, they will say that as happiness and flourishing and communal, whatever, whatever, but you're being driven. We're agents in the game. 
economic system as a whole, which is actually a level of abstraction above the software itself. And I try to make this point pretty closely because often I, when I first get involved with a project, I get handed a protocol specification. And I'm like, cool, that's the plant of the system. It's the machinery. This is what someone can do. But like, what will they do? What sort of happens? What's the extra layers of incentive control embedded through the tokens? Yeah, we don't really know. Well, what are we trying to accomplish? High-level business goals. We kind of work our way down from a representation of the economic system of interest down to what elements are sort of still under our control to design, what elements are in fact sort of predetermined by the use case or the software, etc. And ultimately, we want to design generally steering systems. So this steering system. So again, I, I think it's important to understand, you know, as we move forward in the, um, you know, the healing the divide or, you know, the Hegelian synthesis or what have you, is that they're going to meld like hyper-capitalism with planned economies. Like that is the goal. I mean, the, the stories that we've been told over the last century or whatever about what capitalism was or about what socialism was, are going to be fully replaced by cybernetic economics. And, and then the question is, like, how is the economy programmed? And I think they would like to try to tell us, oh, through radical democracy, through participation with our tokens. Um, but I think it's far more likely that it's, it's you know, what, what Bobby said, you know, out there, like, oh, we're going to consult with experts like you, Bitcoin people, to decide, like, what, you know, how to move forward with the regulations and the networks. It's going to be the people who are at the top tier who are doing the, to the engineering. And and the engineering, again, it's within the context of what Charles was saying, you know, oh, you know, lover earth, right? Have you brought enough gifts? You know, and I, I think sadly, again, as an economist, as an environmentalist and someone who really believes that there are things that need to be fixed, I can see why people would have such revulsion to this idea of like the Gaia worship, because I guess I hadn't really spent a lot of time looking at that. But it does make you, especially when you're the guy is literally standing up and saying it into a room full of people who are building the next second, like cybernetic economic world order that you have to be a lover and earn the love through gifts and uh, balancing out the give and take that through the steady state economy. Um, ugh, it just doesn't feel good. This None of this campaign feels good. So. Um, and if people were around for Web3, I talked a lot about cybernetics and the sort of history of steering systems and what it means to design them. Okay. Um, basically. Uh oh. Okay. So, all right. And then I have one more that I want to do here. Okay. So this is the one. Uh, this is um, with Michael Zargam and Trent McConaughey, and they're talking about doing the engineering as if it were like Sim City, uh, the Sim City game. It's a little bit like Sim City, but you get to step into the city afterwards. <laughs> And that's the game, right? They literally know that it's about like building out the world as if it were a game. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it reminds me a bit of. And this is McConaughey. This is Trent McConaughey from Ocean Protocol. You can even go more extreme, you know, like um, what I'm trying, Cometh, right? Um, which is basically an AMM wrapped by a video game. Uh, and uh, I, I, I love it, right? Because it looks like a video game, but you're actually doing AMM training. And um, this version here, right, is doesn't look like a video game yet, but it already gives you a bit of that feel and that insight, right? And you know, imagine you know, two years from now, someone does something like Cometh did, but for this too as well, right? And it can come there, and maybe it will look like SimCity. <laughs> Who knows? So. 
so yeah maybe it will like maybe we'll all just be living in sim sim city eventually um so let's see i'm getting close guys i know this is a little boring i just wanted to make sure that you kind of saw how it all went together and then tomorrow i'm going to be working on the the podcast uh that eisenstein did with with bobby and sort of the the the, the fraudulent aspects of that um okay so this is all all right so i guess i'm just going to finish listening to the Bretton woods uh the blockchain highlights we have a few more minutes on that uh and and then i'll call it call it a currency as a tool um a tool for human collaboration uh, and we don't see a limit on how much of this tool that we can have the we don't see a limit on the tool for collaboration, like limitless what they're, they're at, the, the applications of what they're planning. The long tail is open to everyone. Um, the vision really is that uh, currency is becoming a tool for the uh, quantifying the storing and the moving of the value between people. Now understand quantifying, moving and storing value. Now we have to understand that the value based on Rianne Eisler's talk was gonna be include natural assets and social assets, right? And all of that is gonna be quantified, which on the one hand is something that Charles says he's against, and yet he's still um, advising Cello, which is doing all of the quantification with very in invasive surveillance technology. And it's much more dimensional, that value, than our current monetary system really allows us to account for. Now, I would say, too, the dimensionality. I don't know if you remember the clip that I played a while back with the guy from um, Cesium, and they were talking about uh, the, the, the NVIDIA's ability to have this high-level processing and all of the back data to predict alternate futures. And so, and almost like a time machine that they could, uh, Rev Labardian, I think was the guy, he's like, yeah, like Rev's building a time machine, right? You you got all of this old data and then you can make predictions out to the future in the Markov, like cone of possibilities. And so when they're talking about granularity and dimensionality, I feel like this is this added dimension. Like they're actually going to try to, to create a currency system uh, or a tokenized system of currency and voting that will allow them to um, project forward beyond the, into the another dimension. That proposal really inspired us. Clear is the Amazon. We're really stuck in this low extractive value economy. And so we want to add all of the variables that today are excluded from the equation of how you value land and how you value uh, an ecosystem and we want to put those in the equation so that then they become monetary value and that they can actually be circulated and create a bioeconomy. Yeah, so the bioeconomy, that's what Cello is. And again, Eisenstein speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He says on the one hand, like, oh, I don't want quantifying everything like that. Doesn't that feel sacred or, you know, indigenous or what have you? But on the other hand, he's like, he's with an or aligned with an organization that's actively promoting that and trying to recalibrate both the measurement and value of different types of economic input. And I, I, sorry, I just want to stop for a second. Um, the measurement part, that's something that Leo's been spending a lot of time on looking into the risk, because again, a lot of this is linked to insurance risk profiling and the measurements. Um, oh, let's see, where is the measurement? Oh, it's over here. Um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit tomorrow, uh, but he shared with me a, um, a report 
called uh, Monitoring, Reporting, and Verification Methodologies in Regenerative Finance. And it's like a 40-page paper about essentially automating the scaling of uh, surveillance tech to fuel the regenerative finance systems. And uh, the, the, the paper was sponsored by Cello Foundation. Uh, let me see, where is it? it was, I think, is it on the cover? think yeah here uh, with support from the cello foundation so all of the measurement is really important and the technology is connected to the measurement part of it Ford Grove was Rian Eisler renowned author and economist this conference is dedicated to new thinking and oh my gosh is that urgently needed and I will just point out that um the uh I, I'm not going to play this, but uh, the Institute for New Economic Thinking is Open Society, George Soros. And in 2013, uh, he did this this clip, which is essentially calling for a new uh, new economic thinking. And they, they put in like millions and millions of dollars buying economists all over the world to set up this new model. Uh, and this is, again, just the same year as they were developing the open mustard seed. So when she's like, oh, yeah, we're, we're just calling for new thinking, it's like echoing uh, Soros. We must change how we measure economic health. Not only does GDP include negatives as positives, it fails to include the huge economic value of the essential activities of the three economic sectors ignored in present thinking. Now, I want to mention, too, the community volunteer sectors of the economy um, and again, they want to measure it. So that means like there's some going to be metrics attached and some sort of level of surveillance and accountability and transparency. Like so everything like a mother's love gets measured, um, you know, a caregiver's, you know, gets measured. But the volunteering part, that is an integral part of the Kennedy legacy, guys. And this is something I'm going to talk a little bit about when I do the next stream. Um, but the volunteerism and the volunteer culture um, is something that goes back I mean, in Philly, there were connections between youth volunteering in the 90s, and all of this is preparing us for an economy that doesn't supposedly won't need us, right? That we are supposed to then perform volunteer service in exchange for our UBI or our social prescribing. And so like when we're looking at, yeah, sure, I'm not against the idea of volunteering, but you have to look at the overall structure. And if what you're saying is you're going to remove people from uh, career opportunities that they find rewarding and use their gifts to push them into volunteering for something that that like they, they're not even adequately compensated for and that all of that requires like getting having numbers attached like that's a problem and I, I think that 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 Ted Kennedy in particular like that was a key part and you'll you'll hear RFK Jr. like talk about like again my family we were always volunteering all the time like that was a part core part of our um, family culture and then yeah okay um that's good but do we have an idea of like what's going to happen if the future of work is to replace your um you know your identity as a contributing member of the economy or society into some sort of UBI format tied to data surveillance of all these things. The natural economy, the community, volunteer economy, and the household economy. I mean, the things that I care about are things about uh, inclusion, how do we build economies that are more equitable. I care about sustainability, especially environmental uh, sustainability. How do we give agency to uh, people like women, 
minority agency. And again, agency is like being an agent in the game. And a lot of that, like women and minorities, that is coming through microfinance, which is incredibly predatory. But and they'll they'll assign everyone a digital wallet to go with is, And so the concept of financial inclusion and how we at least give everyone access to the same tools so that people have, call it fairness and equal opportunity, while combined with things like transparency and trust, I think are essential to the world that we want to create going forward. And things like Bancor and their protocol to deliver, you know, call it community currencies, I think are, are, are one of the things that if, if you're really interested in this aspect of how we can make the world a better place, and how we can democratize the global financial system in a way where every human being on the planet has equal access, you know, definitely one of the rabbit holes I recommend going down. Now, and again, I, I want to mention with Pierce, like there's the tie to Bannon too, and his time at Goldman Sachs, where they were doing valuing of crypto items, like crypto assets. So, um, you know, that's important to keep in mind. Well, my big interest is in the bottom billion, the underserved populations who aren't currently in the economy. Because that's the mineable resource who don't have identities, who don't have access to the economic system, who don't have um, access to electricity and the things that we take for granted. I think it's really great to have these conversations because we're creating systems that needs to work for all of us. And we're really discussing what's happening in the world uh, with inequity. So let the and I will I will point out that they were very emphatic about including half women. That 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 the original Bretton Woods only had very few women, and that half of the participants were women. Again, they want everybody on board. Great debate begin. First up, cryptocurrency. For the first time in history, the sitting president of the United States of America tweeted about Bitcoin. With the introduction of advanced technologies like blockchain, the next 75 years are going to be transformed even more so than the last. We can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. To steal a quote from Albert Einstein. Although most of the problems were made on purpose to move us forward in the game. The world needs a trustless system that cannot be manipulated by governments, bureaucrats, or corporations. Um, so what I'm advocating for is an alternative to the system that we have today that's built on blockchain powered by crypto. We had wide-ranging arguments in favor of crypto and blockchain is an alternative to the current status quo. Blockchain gives us an opportunity to democratize this tool called money in a way that we haven't had access to um, in the past centuries. So again, do we really think that this blockchain system is democratizing in the way most people understand it? I would say no. And this, this is the guy from Holochain. There's a huge opportunity with the advent of cryptographically secure and validated distributed technology for us to really overturn things and I think this is the natural. Now this is not overturning things. Like if you look and see who's in the room, none of this is being overturned, at least against the will of the existing system. It's transitioning, but it's not being overthrown. Of course. Blockchain gives us the opportunity to create a long tail of new currencies, currencies for neighborhoods, currencies for affinity groups, for teams, currencies for schools. Now, so listen to all these little things she's talking about, affinity groups, teams, schools. This is because they have to regulate the um, emergence, uh, the criticality at this tiny level, right? For the World Sensorium, they need all of these little local organizations with their own little currency signaling for the organizational, for the coordination. 
uh, and that's really what we focus on at Bancor. I'm very interested always in uh, community currencies and how do we deliver ubiquitous financial inclusion around the planet. And so many people who are today completely outside of the market economy can potentially participate in a market economy because with digital technologies, you can get down to the scale at which they're operating. Um, now, and again, the market economy is going to mean that you have a digital wallet and that you were in the game. And so, again, it's part of globalization and part of the, the shift from atoms to bits uh, that we all become digital to be participants in this marketplace. Um, and, and that's an extractive. I mean, again, I'm not saying that there, there aren't entities that want Western style banking inclusion or whatever. But once you have that access point, you are part of the cybernetic control grid. Building uh, not just a currency, but a community of value. You're going to see more and more uh, of this self-reinforcing cycle. You start using it in effective ways. Like, how do we... Uh, move water from being considered a commodity to being worked on as a commons. So water as a commons, we know that water is important. So this is where the DAOs come in, the decentralized autonomous organizations and the voting and the tokenizations. Everything in the, con they're going to describe it as the commons, but they're going to tokenize it and uh, assign it to blockchain digital governance systems. Now that's interesting and then blockchain is a really interesting solution for helping orchestrate and govern a commons of water or a commons of air or a commons of air what what is that even like how does this this is doug rushkoff i guess i who who imagines a dow of air you know that that's even going to be a thing that we have to need or commons of coal you know how do we economize them we may actually wind up seeing states embrace digital currency faster than people expected yes and, so and i think that the states embracing it that would have been through um the payments like Again, it didn't fully happen, but the, the push towards digital payments for the lockdowns when people were getting that assistance, like the digital transfers that and the, and the e-government. So again, it's it's all of them are involved. It's not one or the other. It's both and. So we are starting to see it in a meaningful way where we are improving the quality of lives of people that have been very, very disenfranchised for a long time. Now, again, the improving the quality of life means that all of those people are under surveillance. I just want to emphasize that all of those people are now placed under surveillance for their own good. And something or some machine is going to tell them what is good for them, what their good metrics are, what their happiness is, and they're going to be programmed that way. And they're going to be under surveillance to be steered into a better outcome, which is the pay for success finance contracts. And they're going to go after the people who are, on the one hand, the most disenfranchised, but with they're not totally broken because the pay for success needs a sweet spot of somebody who with limited resources can look good on the dashboard. From Treasury secretaries to central bankers. It's a mix between uh, economics, environmental issues, uh, social issues, technological issues. To crypto founders. Our mission as we saw it was to present you with a diversity of perspectives. We heard from writers. The minute people use blockchain the way they could, which is as a way of, of, of reflecting the abundance of a society with. That's not how they're going to use it, Doug. Plenty of people who have who have skills and, and want to do things. So again, 
plenty of people who have skills and want to do things. So this is this is where we're talking about like the globotics, right? The remote robotic piloted workforce, the future of work where you compete to drive a burrito delivery vehicle like a robot, right? That's what it is. It's not some beautiful thing they might imagine. But and maybe if the power dynamic were different, it could be more beautiful. But that's not how it's going to be. One person can drive 10 robots in 10 different Walmarts. That's what they're imagining. Uh, that's when it's a threat. We need to get outside of that old paradigm we're stuck in. We leave Bretton Woods with that fresh perspective and new challenges facing the monetary system of the next 75 years. They can reshape and reconfigure along the way. And cryptocurrencies are most well positioned to be that paradigm shift. And in fact, they already are. What will the next 75 years look like? Global monetary cooperation, community-based currencies, According to many, there's Charles right there. <laughs> here we are in the middle of that paradigm shift. This was the perfect historic setting to chart its course, and now, now could be time to set out on its path. All right, so. All right, so I guess that's most of the beautiful money part of the map, but just to just to sort of sum up for for folks. Um, so what I've been focused on this afternoon was really looking at two tracks. Uh, Jem Bendel, um, who was featured in Aaron W. Aaron Van Diver's article about promoting eco-libertarianism as an answer to climate authoritarianism and his connections to Will Ruddick and community currencies and um, uh, this deep, deep adaptation sort of systems theory. And then also looking at uh, the news that it's not so new anymore, but like a week or so ago about Eisenstein joining the campaign, uh, RFK Jr.'s campaign as their sort of, I guess, in-house philosopher and what his connections to uh, deep adaptation, uh, Bernard Lietaire and community currencies, Galia Benarzi and this Bretton Woods event, um, what that meant. Um, and I think it's I think it's quite significant to see how these things are all knit together because we're, we're meant to understand community currency as, um, you know, and decentralized democracy as something wonderful. Um, but as I, I've said, the, the power dynamic hasn't changed. There's been no change to any of the power dynamics involved. And so why should we, they're going to tell us a story that's going to get us to go along with the next phase of the, the, the play. Um, and so the, again, using the authoritarian government threat that was to shift us towards a uh, tokenized uh, commons of flourishing on blockchain with uh, programmable money and digital wallets, right? To engineer us into some coronation of distributed cognition superintelligence through gamified platforms. Like, and, and you know, again, it's this optical illusion. Um, which are you seeing, the young girl or the old woman? Um, can you see both? Can you hold both at once? And, you know, I, you know, I'm just asking you to sort of entertain this idea that we need to interrogate the idea of community currency and cybernetics in a more meaningful way. And the next time uh, I come back, I'm going to go through this circle of clips, which is drawn from uh, the podcast that 
uh, Eisenstein did uh, a year ago with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., despite the fact that he said their relationship started out at the falconry fundraising um, gathering lunch. Uh, it was not love at first sight over the falconry. Actually, they knew each other a, a, a good bit back. And I'm sure Robert F. Kennedy Jr. thought that Eisenstein's uh, position on uh, climate would be useful to his campaign. And um, although I have to say, like the more I look into Eisenstein, even though I know he has sort of a whole like crew around him, uh, just for the regular American, this idea of sort of new age channeling, uh, lover earth, uh, psychedelic stuff, like doesn't really seem like a, an easy sell to your your average middle class American. But I guess I guess we shall see. A lot of a lot of the things he says sound really nice if you didn't know about cello and um, uh, regenerative finance and sensor networks. So. Anyway, thanks everybody for hanging out. Um, well, I'm, I'm probably gonna uh, try to do the, the rest of this uh, at some point tomorrow.